Hello, and welcome to Conversations with Kari. I'm your host, Kari Filer. In today's episode, I'm speaking with a friend of mine named Brad. He's from Chicago, grew up there, and we discuss life growing up in Southside Chicago, reparations, the joy of being past COVID generally, honor culture, the ubiquity of American violence, racing cars, religion, supermassive black holes, Elon Musk, basic income, campaign finance, and other topics. This podcast is supported by a Patreon. If you go to patreon.com forward slash Kari underscore Filer, you can support the show there. I hope you enjoy the show. I remember. Uh, so we're live. We're live now. Uh, I met you, Brad. You're ho- you hosted Kasi, uh, my good, good cousin Kasi, a longtime loved one. And I came out. He came to Southern California. I went out to visit him. You were his host. Uh, you're apparently his old friend from high school. Uh, and I met you. We got along right away. We were talking about serious issues right away. <laughs> I remember that. Uh, and it was just great. So please, if you would, introduce yourself to the people that are listening. Uh, yeah. So uh, hi, everybody. I'm Brad. Um, I'm uh, from Chicago, South Side, born and raised. Uh, and I moved out to L.A. a couple years ago. Um, uh, like you said, I met him through his cousin, Kasi, who I've known for somewhere like 15 years now. So uh, really good friend. Uh, I talk to him all the time. Always uh, always good to spend time with him. And, uh, you know, through him, I met you, Kari, and you're a really great guy. And, uh, yeah, just eager to get going. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Yeah, I remember. Uh, so what... I guess what what made you and Kasi get along? How did you guys hit it off? Oh, that's a really good question. Hmm. I think gotta think back. Um, we had. Uh, I mean, it was high school. You know what I mean. So, mm. so we went to uh, we went to a predominantly white high school um, on the South Side of Chicago called De La Salle Institute, and it was a private school. Um, thankfully I had a scholarship. There's no way I would have been able to afford it if I hadn't. And, um, yeah, we, we just, uh, I don't know. We, he was just a good guy, you know, yeah. always, always seemed to have his head on straight. Kasi is such a reserved person. It's kind of funny. Um, you know, he, he's not one that's just going to be, uh, you know, wiling out. So, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's definitely the kind of person that, when you grow up on the south side, you just kind of want to be around that kind of person, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So he was a good dude. I could tell way back then. So we just kind of clicked. And and uh, after high school ended, I think we probably became even better friends because um, we had a bunch of mutual friends as well. And then all of us kind of stayed in contact. We had like a group text. And uh, yeah, I've just, I've just never stopped talking to him. So a lot of people say a lot of things about the South Side of Chicago. What are they getting wrong? What's something that me as a Southern Californian, uh, what are some stereotypes that I have about South Side of Chicago that are wrong? And maybe what are some that are right? We're, we're jumping right in it, huh? Oh, yeah. Um, let's, man, I could I could write you a book or I could write you a paragraph. <laughs> Which one you want? Uh, long, long essay form thousand words uh man so i think the number one thing that people get wrong is 
we're just we're just people, man. We're just like they they go to great lengths in the media to scare people, to paint the darkest, bleakest picture. Um, they go to, uh, uh, you know, to 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 great lengths to to not humanize and not draw empathy with people that are in a terrible situation. Hmm. Um, and that's what that's what Chicago, the whole city is, not just the South Side. Don't get me wrong. It's the South Side is bad, but it's because of the the corruption, because of the the lack of empathy, because of the isolationism, hmm. the xenophobia, the racism. All of that plays into this giant cauldron that is Chicago, and then and then you see these headlines, and that's just the bubbles that are coming off the top. That's not that's not even the full story. So I think that's probably the biggest thing is that it's 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 uh, you know five hundred thousand people that are in a cycle of of poverty and and disadvantageous economic conditions and over policing and you know i mean over policing is is a <laughs> that's a gentle way of describing it um it, it, it's just it's just not designed to help american citizens and uh that's what you get when you when you when you when you don't value people and you don't you don't prepare to to give them a way to overcome the adversity that uh, they're thrown into when they're born. Now, I've seen the the drill videos. Uh, and so when I when I it, this would have been maybe 20 at 19, 2018, uh, people were just mm-hmm. Chicago was on the top of a lot of headlines. And I said, you know, I've been to Chicago. It's a, it's a beautiful town. Uh, so I said, let me look into this this particularly violent corner that that's garnering so many headlines. And so I looked up the drill music uh, and I saw the videos. And so I said, these guys are perpetuating, uh, honoring, taking human life uh, and they're doing it in spades. And so is that not the case? Is it not the case that these young men are making these choices of their own free will? Um, uh, yes and no. It's it, yes, they are. They are humans with free will and they get to make a choice. And and obviously I'm one example. I had I had options, you know, mm. uh, I had loving parents that were always trying to protect me from what was going on around us and and where we were kind of um, uh, you know, where we had planted our roots, our family. Uh, but I also, I, I knew people that kind of didn't have those same protections and those same options. And yeah, they're, they're, they're people, but they're people between a rock and a hard place. Um, I, I think specifically the music, the best way to, to describe that is, is I think T.I. said it best in an interview years ago. He said music, he said art reflects life in any any form that it takes. And music is just another form of art. These these kids are showing you what their what their lives are filled with. 
that's that's the art they're creating. It's it's a reflection of their environment, not mm-hmm. the other way around. Mm-hmm. The environment's not necessarily a, reflect, a reflection of them. The the music is a reflection of the environment. So I think so, it's, I think it's both. I think it's it's a, I think it's a case of chicken and egg, at a lot of times with the with the music yeah. and the culture. There's a there's a very clear egg in this situation, um, and and it's not the music and it's not the kids, um, and, and and for a brief rundown. Um, that I could, I could give you there. I mean, in the, in the fifties and sixties, when there was a big push towards, uh, obviously civil rights and, and black independence and, and things like that, Chicago was on the front lines of flipping them, flipping the middle finger to black people. Um, the black Panther party as much, uh, <laughs> As much incorrect information is spread about uh, that particular group, they were labeled a terrorist group by the FBI, hmm. uh, and the KKK still is not labeled a terrorist group by the FBI, as far as I'm aware. Uh, the Black Panther Party was on the south side of Chicago opening food kitchens. They were supplying breakfast to, to school children. On their own dimes, like no, but they weren't. They weren't running around trying to find cops and shoot them. They weren't uh, doing anything but trying to protect their own neighborhoods from police that would shoot, rape, lynch whoever they wanted. Um, and they and they formed as a, as a militia, as is their right according to the Second Amendment, to to be a well organized militia uh, to protect their own citizens and. Uh, on I think it was like 71st and like right right around South Shore Drive, uh, they the the Chicago police lined up a firing squad outside of Huey P. Newton's apartment in the middle of the night and fired I, I don't even know how many bullets into his apartment, but I've seen the pictures and his pregnant girlfriend was in the bed next to him. He had people in the you know in the in the living room and stuff. They they massacred. Uh, people that were just trying to help their community. Um, and that was a Chicago, that was CPD. And they hate having that brought out. The CPD was recently exposed as having a black site, quote unquote, where they, uh, they would disappear people and torture them until they confessed to crimes that they didn't commit. And then they would throw them in jail to try to fill a quota. Um, and they were just yanking innocent people, innocent black people off the streets. Like this is, this is the, this is the environment that they've built because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the Black Panther Party who flooded the streets with crack in the 80s. You know what I mean? That was the U.S. government. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't the, the gangs that are in the street right now that have locked up or massacred more African Americans on the south side of Chicago than 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 are free. That's that was the Chicago police and the criminal justice system. That's still very corrupt, and you can't you can't grind someone into the dust with the heel of your boot without creating anger and resentment and hate and and breeding violence that's that's it's it's been bred in for 40 50 years at this point mm. maybe more 
directly into that community while all the money and opportunity has been siphoned out. Hmm. Um, the the children that are that are in these schools, they I, I remember I worked at a school on the south side, Hales Franciscan High School, um, and they were a private school that was just uh, just great people, just wholly committed to the mission of making sure that little black boys would be able to have an education and have opportunity outside of the South side. Mm. And there were kids there that have never been outside of a four block radius of their house. And, and that's a, that's a wild sentence for, 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 for you to be 15 or 16 years old and you've, and you've lived in the same four blocks, half a square mile, your entire life. You know, like maybe occasionally you'll go with your family to, you know, go downtown or, but I get never saying. on I get your own. Yeah. It, it's, it limits your field of view. It mm-hmm. limits your understanding of the world. It limits the options that you even, even can conceive of taking and for it to be doing, for it to be done so young. And then for you to have, you know, like there's kids that have guns pressed in their hands at 10 years old. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They're, they're stringing these kids out on drugs. <laughs> They're fucking throwing them out there on the street and 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 singing songs about how the the you know thug life is the only way to make money, and that's all these kids see. So they don't know any different. And it's it's a very clear egg, and and the violence and the music and the uh, the social anarchy that's kind of happening there is is definitely the chicken. Well, I don't. So with but what I see is a 13 year old, uh, even younger, let's say 11, 11, 12, 13 year old who could very reasonably be like his uncle, let's say, who happens to be a, a server, uh, let's say a manager at a local restaurant, uh, or he could be like his aunt, who is a uh, a retail sales worker at some some enterprise, you know, within within a few miles. So he's got examples of people who just work honest jobs uh, and earn their living. He's got examples in his family, but he chooses the gangster life because it's so much more appealing. Uh, it's so much more exciting. You get so much more respect. You get so much more love and money. And it's just for him, it's a no brainer. Right. For him, it's look, I can either be this. Uh, and now I, I grew up in confidence. So this was this was the decision that I made when I was 12. And this is why where I'm speaking from on this experience. I had uncles that were professionals and I chose to go be a fruit town Piru. That was my main goal in life was to join the fruit town Piru's, even though I had lawyers and, and teachers and professionals in my family, uh, because that's what the culture that's what the culture su- suggested with a capital S that I do. Uh, but still, I think as a society, the question we have to ask is, why does this young person choose this life? Because they are choosing it. And I think that's the most meaningful line of inquiry. Uh, what I don't what I don't want to do is devo- is remove responsibility from these young men for making these killer choices, because that's what they're doing. That's the fact of it. Now, the, what we want, I think what we want to go is how do we encourage them? To make better choices how do, how do we give them is is it the examples is it i mean in my case i can tell you what i can tell you what saved me 
my mom moved me out the hood. Uh, I was going to join the fruits. There was nothing I wanted to do except join the fruits. And that was my goal. It didn't matter what my parents did. It didn't matter what anything said. The only thing that saved my life was she just moved me away. She moved me out the hood. She moved me from Compton to uh, Covina in the San, San uh, what is this? San Gabriel Valley. Uh, so there was no gang to join. Uh, and so I didn't join a gang. I ended up just smoking a bunch of weed and uh, ended up getting decent grades in high school. And that's what saved my life was simply removing me from the environment. Um, and, you know, and, you know, it's not reasonable that we, we can't do that. <laughs> we can't do that for all these young men. And so my, you know, my heart goes out because I understand what it is to choose that. What I don't feel like I hear harped on enough in the public space is that it is a choice. It's not like these men are forced to do this. They aren't. They aren't forced to live this life. They're choosing it. I, I understand that. And I'm not trying to divorce any responsibility from the people who are on the ground making the decisions. Mm. But in the same way that you don't jail a soldier because he's ordered to commit a war crime, that he didn't understand the consequence of his action, and you hold accountability to the general that made the call mm. first and foremost, and then you work your way down, I think it needs to be a top-down assessment of responsibility, not a bottom-up. Mm. And the bottom-up assessment of responsibility is the current philosophy, is the is the police state, is the, you know, oh, this kid, uh, and just like you said, a second of you said, all oh, these men are making it, a lot of times it's not men, it's 14, 15-year-old kids. Mm. I, I would never look at a 14 or 15 year old and think you're a grown man. I, mm. You just you don't think the right way. Your brain is not developed enough. There are physical changes that need to occur in your body for you to even function in a society properly. Where would you like, where you, would you start placing accountability? Where where was where's the first person you would say, OK, you're the you're the first mover person. You need to be the first to change because somebody's going to have to be the first to change, right? The first person that needs to change is the mayor. The mayor? Right now, that mayor is... Uh, uh, I forget Lori her Lightfoot. name. Lori Lightfoot. There Lori it is. Lightfoot. And I was hopeful that she would start affecting some meaningful change and start pushing, uh, I, I would say, policies that are designed to start to, to stop the bleeding first hmm. and then address the root cause of the bleeding. And it's, it's really simple in my mind. Economic opportunity is the number one thing that's needed hmm. in order to stop these kids. Not, not a culture change, not anything, but, but the fact that they think that the only way that they could ever live the American dream is to make it as a gangster or a rapper. Mm. That's that's what their understanding is at 14 and 15. And I'm not blaming them for not knowing more about the world at that age. Because I didn't really know no more about the world at that age neither. So I can't really hold them to that. But making sure that they have an acceptable level of education instead of siphoning money out of the South Side and siphoning all of those property tax dollars and, and then giving them disproportionately to north side and, and west side, you know, already affluent neighborhoods like that. That's the kind of thing that that causes that cycle to perpetuate. So so CPS, Chicago Public Schools, is accountable. Uh, Chicago police are wildly accountable. They should be number two, I think, on the list. Um, 
and then the and then the business council in Chicago, the 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 bankers, the lawyers, all the people downtown that are always pushing, hey, put more money in my, you know, my child's school, put more money. They they are the ones that are driving it even further in that direction because every dollar that they siphon away to send to Lane Tech means that, you know, uh, uh, Simeon, or maybe Simeon's probably funded enough at this point because of famous alum like Derrick Rose and whatnot. But, you know, like you got Bogan, you know, you got uh, uh, Dunbar. Like there's tons of like underserved high schools where these kids are getting a fraction of the dollar amount per child that kids in, in more affluent neighborhoods are getting. Like there's, you know, there's kids that are that are going without books, going without teaching supplies in 30 and 35 child classrooms every period where they can't possibly keep track of all these kids, can't possibly serve all their needs. So so that in and of itself gives them this enormous barrier to even progressing, even making it out of that situation and learning, hey, you know, what other choices can I make? Do you see the fatherless home as a factor in this uh, phenomenon of course of mm. course and that's and that's a big a big chunk of cpd responsibility goes there because they've been murdering and uh, falsely imprisoning all these fathers for 50 60 years mm. Mm. so i mean when you live in a in a in a generational cycle <laughs> of fatherless homes then who is who's gonna teach you a trade? Hmm. Who's gonna who's gonna wake you up and tell you, hey, no, nah, you can't dress like that. Pull your pants up, mm-hmm. straighten up your belt. Like who's doing that? Because mom's at work. Because that's all she could do. And I can and I can speak as someone who came up with an absentee father. Uh, I had great examples as uncles, uh, terrific examples. I was going down mm-hmm. the road of a gangster because I didn't have a father. The in the home male is absolutely indispensable for the development of young boys. Uh, Absolutely indispensable. And I see that phenomenon uh, wreaking havoc in our community. Absolutely. And and this isn't to say that black men are good fathers. That's that would be an incorrect statement. Black men are probably statistically as likely or more to be better fathers when in the home than anyone else. Or, or at least than than the average American, I would say. Um, I've seen some statistics. I'm not sure how reliable they are, but I've seen some statistics that uh, uh, of the um, I, don't, I don't even quote I don't even quote statistics. I'm shaking on. I don't even do that. But what I will say is that the black fathers that I know, and I know a, a great many, are absolutely devoted to their children, to making sure that they live healthy lives, to making sure that they get shown the the best side of the world, even when they grow up in places like the south side of Chicago. And it's it's it would be a disservice to insult them by trying to pin this and say, oh, well, it's just the absentee black fathers. They're all absentee. It, that's not the case. The no, no, no. I wouldn't, take, I wouldn't dare suggest that they're take, all absentee. But it, uh, I think to your point, it doesn't take a lot. Yeah, it only takes 10 or 20 kids a year yep. to have absentee fathers to shoot 600 people. So it's 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 really it's really disproportionately skewed in favor of the violence and in favor of perpetuating that cycle at this point. 
And that's why I said there, there's so much work that needs to be done to identify these at-risk children and to just, honestly, I think they should just give these kids opportunities, not, not make them available. Like, find these children, show up at their door and say, hey, I will pay you an absurd amount of money to do very little. I, come, in, come into the library and count books and put them on the shelves properly. We'll give you a 20K signing bonus and, and five grand a month. And if you do that to the most at-risk kids, then what you'll do is you'll immediately pull back that wave of violence because these kids don't have to sit there and talk to their drug dealer and say, hey, I need 600 bucks because my mom can't keep the freaking lights on and we ain't got no hot water. Mm. So what do I do? You know? So so you keep those 20 kids, 100 kids a year off the street, and you're going to do wonders for the rest of them. Weren't there so, boarding schools for for boys in Chi-Town that were really... Yeah, but ain't no black people from the trust, no white people to show up and take their kids off. No, black days. boarding schools. All black boarding schools where they had them wear suits and ties. I heard about them years ago. There, there were some. There were some. And actually, I... It, I the ones I knew of weren't boarding schools per se, but they were um, like magnet schools. Hmm. Um, I'm not sure about ones that were full on boarding schools with dormitories and, and off site and off campus. You know, I'm saying boarding, that. but I they might not it might not have been boarding, but they were definitely uh, they had them in suits and ties and they called all their professors, mm-hmm. sir. Uh, but like I said, mm-hmm. that was just one that I saw years ago and I haven't followed up on. Yeah, there was there was one that was run by who the guy who was the principal of Hales Franciscan when I was there. His name was Arthur Relliford, and he was doing a fantastic job with those kids. Uh, like I said, sometimes it just, it's just the opportunity, the individual attention, and the, and the and the structure, like you were saying with with having a male role model. Um, that's that's a lot of it right there. That that solves, I would say the the greater portion of the problem if that could be a you know a well-funded well-organized endeavor you know if you had if you had federal levels of funding for a program to curb the the violence on the south side you know like okay well we've got one billion dollars to stop this massacre cool like that's a billion dollars well spent in my opinion we've spent a billion dollars on way dumber stuff as a country so and I would say I would say it needs to happen because the world is so much bigger than the hood. <laughs> now, I, you know, I grew up in the hood and the hood. You can only see as far as the edge of the hood. And it's like the, it's like the sky is a big mirror. When you look up, all you see is where you're standing. Uh, and it's not helpful because the world is so large and so complex and facing so many problems. Uh, we need our people with our eyes looking with their eyes up. Uh, looking at what's going on, trying to trying to get ahead of this stuff. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir, big dog. I grew up there too, so yep. <laughs> I know, I know yep. what it's like. I didn't I didn't leave the state of Illinois other than like a few family road trips, you know, to other states hmm. until I was like on my own. I, I think the first time I left the state of Illinois on my own was like 26 or 27. Hmm. So that's a long time. That's a long time to be on the south side, you know. So, uh, and and I left I left the country for the first time just before the pandemic hit. So um, it's it's just it just limits you so much. And, and like I was saying earlier, you know, there there are kids that have never been outside of a square mile, 
in their in their whole freaking lives. So yeah, like like that that artificial barrier is very much there and it needs to be removed external. That's not something that we can just look at these kids and say, "Well, so by a bootstrap." Eh, I'm no. actually a critic. Yes. I'm a critic of the get out the hood mentality. I know when I was coming up, there were a lot of uh, black people that said, oh, man, I can't wait to get out the hood. That was a very popular idea, getting out the hood. Well, getting out the hood is has, I think, has actually done a lot of harm. Right. We need Dr. Dre in Compton. Uh, the fact that he's left isn't helpful. We need uh, our. No, no, no. Nipsey, Nipsey was a great example. Nipsey was a great example. Yeah, exactly. yeah. He was he was great. And now he's dead because he didn't leave. I don't think he's dead because he didn't leave. I think he's dead because some idiot made a terrible choice. Uh, and I mean, that idiot would not have had access to him if he didn't live in the hood and if he wasn't there every day. So at the end of the day, the the problem is not. And the reason I left is because I was starting to be successful through just absolute determination and grit and just and just luck, mostly. And. It was to the point where I was like, if I stay, I'm going to end up on, in a, you know, front page news. They're just going to come rob me for my car, for my fucking shirt, whatever, shoes, whatever the heck they want to take. They're going to shoot me three times and that's going to be it. And my story is going to be over. So I had to go somewhere where that wasn't an option so I could build in safety mm. with the intent like, hey, let me build something that I can actually go help people with and then come back. But that's the only way that you can really even ensure that you'll be around to finish. But also that that's what that's what Nipsey did, right? He he came he brought business back to the hood. So that he was in Absolutely. the he was in the bring back stage <laughs> when he got killed. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. But but he lived there the whole time. So he had he had friends, he had enemies, and, and one of them enemies came around and and, and did him. So now, Nipsey is like, also an example of the disparity between uh, black American descendants of slaves and uh, black recent immigrants. So when you look at the economic data, you see that black recent immigrants do about as well as you would expect for any hardworking American, regardless of skin color. These are uh, Nigerians mm -hmm. and 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 and, and uh, Senegalese, but black American descendants of slaves are the group that we're all concerned about that that seem to be lagging behind the American curve. Uh, and so it's not so that I think that's evidence that points towards the less in, less relevant impact, not non relevant, but less relevant impact of overt skin color racism and the more relevant impact of attitudes and how they perpetuate subtly throughout our culture. Uh, yeah, that's what I think that. And Nipsey's an example of that because his father was Eritrean, I believe. Uh, and I think he had, I don't think he has a, uh, I don't think his dad was a black American descendant of slaves. And that made a difference. I saw, I read an article where Nipsey, he said he went back with his dad to Eritrea, Eritrea when he was in his late teens or something like that. And that's what inspired him to come back and give to the community. I, I, I fully agree with you on that. I think, I think there is a big difference. And I think part of it is, part of it is, a and self-doubt i want to i want to say that that's what i think it's not when i say attitudes i think the biggest one of the biggest aspects of our attitudes is holding us back is self-doubt i think we keep ourselves out the game before we even get a shot 
Well, that I was I was just about to touch on that part. Hmm. Part of is part of part of the reasons that we have these attitudes are are remnant of being so hard done by. Hmm. Not only for literally since the day we showed up at this country, like it hasn't changed, but uh, the 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 system is not only unapologetic but actively trying to continue that process. I, I know you know about the 13th Amendment um, and, and the fact that there are more African-American men doing prison labor today than there ever were slaves at any one point mm. in the U.S. There's, there's more people incarcerated now doing slave labor for the U.S. prison system than ever were working on plantations all at once. Mm. That makes sense. So, so uh, say there's two two point five million slaves, you know, in in eighteen thirty nine or whatever, and that was the biggest number that, that there ever was. There's more than that. there's like two point seven million African American men that are incarcerated right now. So, so that who are slaves that, under the same system? Who are, who are essentially who are essentially still slaves? Literally still slaves. Slave. Literally still so, slaves. Same so, system. Uh, Right. So so it's 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 partly that this system is not only unapologetic, it's it's not it hasn't gone anywhere. It's changed its face. It's you know, it, it's had some serious plastic surgery, mm-hmm. but uh, it's the same dude and it's and it's doing the same thing. And there have been no reparations. There have been there's been no attempt at at making right these wrongs. And it makes us extremely risk averse, because if you're a black man and you make you notice if you make the wrong decision at any one point in time, you're dead. Mm. That's it. Your story's over. Mm. That one one mistake, you might as well be dead. You'll be in jail or or dead before the end of the day. It, it could be one thing that that screws up your entire life, no matter how many good decisions you made in a row. So, being risk averse is something that's baked in to our DNA at this point. Like, have you have you heard of epigenetic changes? I'm to, familiar to with epigenetics DNA? generally as a as a lay. Epigenetics are uh, for the, for the listeners who may not be um, as as uh, well versed and, and and familiar with that kind of thing is uh, there your body can write changes to your DNA that that based on stress responses based on things that you experience during your life that then get passed on to your children and and. They've shown in many, many studies that extreme stress, food scarcity, things like that generally get passed on to children as actual genetic traits. So how many hundreds of years of stress and and food scarcity and constant threat of duress, you know, against your life and, and all kinds of things have black people endured and passed on at this point? How hardwired is it to us to be absolutely terrified of everything you see when you go outside so so a hundred thousand dollar loan to us isn't a business loan that's not an opportunity that's a that's a ball and chain that could ruin your life so so we can't get things wrong so it's very hard for us to get things right too yeah i've been calling for the uh end of the exception in the 13th amendment for years um I think we need to end that exception. So remove that loophole, make prisoners full humans and stop uh, having them become slaves as soon as they're duly convicted of a crime. Uh, and after that, I think you will see prison reform automatically. 
Uh, I think the prison reform is unavoidable if you if you patch the hole in the 13th Amendment. Um, I have called for reparations. Now, the number I call for is ten thousand dollars a year for 38 million black American descendants of slaves for 10 years. Um, I think that's something like three point eight billion dollars over 10 years. Uh, my cousin said that that's too small by an, by about 100. <laughs> that's way too small. Another cousin. Small. Uh, I, I'll give you I'll yeah. give you a quick number and. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt, but I know you're a number. Uh, I tracked just the damage done on to Black Wall Street in Oklahoma, the Tulsa massacre. Mm. Uh, there was, I think, the number was 121 million dollars of damage in 1920s dollars done then. And then I, I, I just, I did a real simple calculation. I just tracked the growth or decline of the stock market every year since, assuming that each of those businesses never made another dollar. Just the value of the Black Wall Street massacre was something like $3.8 trillion. Trillion with a T. That's just one massacre. How many African-American massacres have there been in this country? A hundred? Two hundred? Do we know? Maybe my number is 3.8 trillion. The reason that white people do not want reparations to come up and the reason they don't want to start admitting that they need to pay reparations is because they know they can't afford the bill. They can't afford the bill. Just facts. $3.8 trillion is an entire year of GDP for the U.S., if I'm not mistaken. That's every dollar the United States makes for an entire year. And that's just one massacre. Yeah, yeah. So my number was three point eight trillion over ten years, uh, but you would call for more than that. Yeah, that's that's like I said that that's just Black Wall Street. Mm. What you came up with just pays for that, and 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 doesn't pay for it, but is a reparation for the damage done. Now, do you which think the damage in lives? The damage is in of prosperity. Course, of course. The damage is, is innumerable. Now, measuring measuring the the. Now, let's measure the likelihood of actually getting the money. So do you think it's possible, likely and pragmatically, to actually get a sum in reparations larger than three point eight trillion over 10 years? Realistically, I think I I don't I think we're attacking the problem. I don't think a cash payout. Is feasible. And the reason being, like I said, a they they don't have enough cash. Uh, And but the second thing is. What is the definition of the word reparation? It's it's to repair or ameliorate damage done to the afflicted person, right? Mm-hmm. So at this point, the damage is not just financial. The damage is psychological. The damage is physical. The damage is, is health. The damage is, is measured in our reduced lifespan compared to the average American. Mm-hmm. The damage is done in our in our education. The damage is done in our business ownership, our home ownership rates. The damage is so widespread and diverse now after 400 continuous years, nonstop. Like the, the civil rights movement did not stop abuse of black bodies in, in the slightest. No one... No one who has half a brain is capable of arguing that fact and knowing in their hearts that they're arguing the truth. You can't do it mm-hmm. because it's, it's not true. So the damage that has that has still not ceased against black bodies, the, the intentional damage has to be 
repaired, has to be made whole. So to do that, we can't just throw cash out because these people don't know how to handle cash anymore. These people, for the most part, have been undereducated, underfunded, underserved. $10,000 a year might pay off one debt each year. And that's great. But that is not repairing what has been done to these families, to these people, to these children. It's just not. It's well, not I can agree with you. I can agree with you there that the the payment would not itself be a uh, fulmination of the reparations process, although it would be the the labeled reparations attempt to, to put a label on it. But what I think the healing that would begin is that if we can pay the reparations, if we can close the loophole and pay reparations, I, I would have them go together. I would say let's actually end slavery. Let's actually pay reparations in a number that we can all agree to. And then let's go forward and let's begin to manifest Dr. King's dream even more. A society in which individuals are judged on their behavior and not the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. I, I fully agree with that. I, I definitely think that it should be a part of it, but I don't think that we should. I don't think that we should even admit. I don't even think that we should discuss the possibility that a cash payment is reparations. I don't even think those two words should be associated so that there's not so that people don't get the wrong idea. Mm. Because if we somehow by some miracle got some kind of cash payment through, then the first thing you would hear is, oh, we paid reparations. It's over. Well, that's and that's why I tie it to yeah, actually ending the, uh, the 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 institution. So the institution of slavery is still alive and well. To your earlier point, so we have to end the institution, have to do that too, and pay the reparations. And people would say, okay, uh, actually, John McWhorter. <laughs> do you listen, to John McWhorter? No, I, I like him a lot. I like John. I imitate him quite a bit. Uh, so John okay. McWhorter said, "Look, you have to understand that." If reparations are paid, to your point, a lot of people are going to say, okay, stop with the with the slavery now, right? They're going to say, okay, stop saying you're behaving in X, Y, and Z ways because of slavery, because that's so long ago. Uh, you weren't actually slaves, even though your grandparents and your great-grandparents bore the scars and, and bled the blood. Uh, but we paid you late and we paid you too little, but officially it's been done. The institution is closed. The checks have been sent. Now let's get on to the business of judging people on their behaviors and let's let's do away with I'm acting this way because my lineage is this. I I I definitely hmm that's a, that's a tough statement to swallow, you know? That's that's one that I can't I, I can't I can't fully get behind. Hmm. And and the reason being is that yes we want to close the institution. Uh yes we want to start to you know apologize to heal the i think congress officially apologized for slavery like four or five years ago if that's not the most backhanded bs you know what i mean it's meaningless like, there, there <laughs> you mean you're still, apologizing for the institution is, is still locking people up still today you're yeah. saying sorry for it and you're then you're turning around and doing it exactly and apology it's, not accepted you know they just made juneteenth the national holiday ridiculous like slavery is over. meaningless you know what i mean meaningless exactly how about how about for next Juneteenth you abolish the th or you uh, rewrite the Thirteenth Amendment? Yeah. yeah. How about that? I bet you do that next Juneteenth. 
But yeah, that's, that's, that's what I said. I tweeted that. I tweeted that. I said, yeah. I said, this is a this is a meaning. This is an empty gesture. Uh, we need to end slavery. Absolutely. And and there's so much, man. I could I could talk to you just I could talk to you for hours just about reparations. But then that would be a real long, boring conversation. So uh, you know, it's there's there's a lot more that needs to be done. The the health issue needs to be addressed. Black people are statistically the most unhealthy. Americans out of all Americans, uh, the lifespan, obviously, the the there there are still black women going into hospitals that are you know you know in labor and and doctors are telling them ah you don't need any you know uh, painkillers you know what I mean you can you can tough it out it doesn't hurt as much as you say it does that's a statistical that's a statistical fact they've done studies on this that that black women reporting pain to doctors uh, doctors associate that with a lower threshold of of where that pain actually is mm. so so just there there's so many areas of this that need to be just absolutely turned over with a fine-tooth comb and it's is honestly one of the longest running and most egregious human rights abuses that's maybe ever happened on the face of the earth which is wild considering that um the rest of the world exists, you know, um, like there, there are some pretty egregious things happening, uh, in a lot of places. So, so the fact that in the richest, most affluent, most opportune place you could possibly be born, you know, uh, this is still one of the worst is that's a huge sentence. Mm -hmm. What are you enjoying these days? What's, what's got you excited to be waking up and, going out into the world these days honestly uh covid being over um mm. that obviously that's the easy answer uh but i went out to a bar when you know things had opened up officially i've been vaccinated since february um and it just felt really good to interact with people again mm. without this expectation without this fear that kind of existed between everybody for so long it feels that, so weird that cool. this is act this was normal right we got so used to that normal social distancing everybody's gonna get me sick new normal that we forget oh oh wow this was the normal when you weren't afraid of a bug every time you touch something <laughs> yeah people were dirty man let's be real people were dirty I'm, i hope we take a lot of lessons from this and we wash our hands more and we clean surfaces more because man, I swear to God, man, people were just nasty, mm. um, and it, I think COVID really revealed that. You, you know, it's cleanliness is is next to godliness or something like that, right? You are such uh, an inspiringly social person. Watching you get along with the people in your community, your friendliness, your neighborliness, uh, as someone who is probably on the lower probably definitely on the lower end of that spectrum. Uh, <laughs> I truly uh, admire what you do. What got you, what, what's your philosophy that backs that? What makes you, what makes you value people so highly? Uh, that's a, <laughs> that's a hilarious uh, question. First of all, I appreciate you saying that about me. That's, that's very kind. And uh, I definitely, I definitely love and appreciate the people that I've been, blessed to have in my life because i've known a lot of terrible people 
Mm. You probably don't know this because of our, you know, relatively brief interaction thus far. You know, we've only really hung out for a couple of days, but um, I really kind of don't like people. Uh, That's really the trick. And uh, when you do find some people that you like, you treat them good so Mm. they don't hate you. So, Mm. So you can be around them and not the people that you don't like. So, so probably not as inspiring a uh, <laughs> philosophy as you're looking for. But no, that's, no, that's right I get here. it. I mean, I'm just, you know, I find myself, I've got these oh. neighbors. Uh, they're so nice. They, they invite me to their barbecues and they say, come on and sit. And yeah, I say, no, I just keep walking. Uh, and I think to myself, I don't want to hang out with you people. I don't know you. And I think, gosh, <laughs> don't, don't be like that. You know, take it. But, uh, you know, I'm, that's how I am. You know, I'm kind of, some people are standoffish, right? And so I'm just in my, mm-hmm. in my age, I'm just coming to realize that I'm a little bit, I'm a standoffish person. Um, that's just, I'm not forward, right? Some people are forward. Some people are standoffish. I'm on the standoffish side uh, for sure. And you said you are too. <laughs> you just discovered the people that you like. Exactly, exactly. And, and there's nothing wrong with being standoffish. There's nothing wrong with, with being a reserved person. I mm. think that that's probably the, uh, you know, if you have two choices, that's probably the wiser one um, in terms of protecting yourself, in terms of being a uh, uh a fixture uh, in your community because uh, the person that everybody knows is the person that's most exposed is probably the the most succinctly I can put that. Are so, you a member of a group of siblings? <laughs> yes, very very many siblings. I have I have uh, three brothers and two sisters. Oh so wow! I'm, I'm number three of six. Number three of six. You said three yeah. brothers and two sisters, so four boys, two girls. Nice. Big family. Very big family. Very big family. We don't always agree, but we do love each other. So, you know, I, I do have I do have really wonderful, loving parents. And that's I can't I can't state enough how much of a difference that's made for me in my life. Um, Just just, uh, you know, being able to not be the product of my environment. Um, mm. They they poured more into me and I was able to build things with that. So, um you know that's that's really just a, a huge formative part of of who I was, but it was also very loud and very uh, annoying mm. to to deal with. And is it's very hard to find space for myself and quiet. Uh, and I relish those times when I do. Mm. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same way. Uh, I developed my ability to be. I'm an only child. So I developed my ability to be alone pretty early, uh, not by choice. <laughs> as you, right. you know, as an, only, as an only child, you figure out how to be alone or you go stir crazy. And so I didn't go stir crazy. Uh, yeah, I like sitting with my thoughts. I think that's a real skill, being able to sit with your thoughts and, and see your thoughts. Do you know about HALT? H-H-A-L-T? Mm-mm. So I do halt all the time. It's whenever I'm irritated about something or I'm snapping at something or I find myself very impatient. I go, wait a minute. H-H-A-L-T. Hungry, hurt, afraid, lonely, tired. Am I hungry? Am I hurt? I'm almost always hurt. I'm very rarely hungry. Uh, am I afraid? All the, Almost all the time. Am I lonely? Not so much. Am I tired? Usually. And so I can usually l- identify what's really aggravating me. And I, and I think that comes, I think that lends to being able to identify the roots of your emotional state because so many people walk around in this 
whirlwind state just taking out energy on the world and they can't even themselves identify what's really going on with them right? and that their entire industry psychology uh, philosophy you know cons- uh, what's psychiatry right there's, there's an entire industry built on people not being able to get in touch with what's really going on with them and i think halt helps a lot because uh, for me it's usually it's one of those uh, and also if i've done somebody wrong if i've got a guilty conscience uh that'll that'll bug me uh yeah that's that's a great uh little mnemonic and i'm gonna remember that because uh my my youngest brother is uh he's on the spectrum Mm. and he's he's often one of those things usually uh i would say for him probably uh hurt afraid and lonely are are probably the biggest ones for him and sometimes he has trouble identifying um kind of exactly what it is he's feeling Mm. um and i definitely will teach that to him as a as a little mnemonic trick that can help him kind of master his emotions a little better that's really that's really great yeah i i'm happy to pass it on i didn't (laughs) i didn't invent it i picked it up uh in in recent news if i can just share an event that happened to me last night I, yeah, yeah. I saw a robbery in process last night in, in my apartment across the way in my complex. Freaking frightening. So here's what happened. I go outside. It's about 930-ish, right? I walk down the stairs. I live on a second floor. And then my stairs are outside, kind of facing the courtyard, other buildings like mine. And I walk down the stairs. And on the other building across from me, so we're talking about... 15 feet away across a small piece of grass, right? So not far at all. And then up the stairs, there's a guy standing at the top of the stairs, leaning with his back against the window. He's dressed in black pants, black hoodie, and he's got this ridiculous brown fake beard on. It looks like it's made of wood and Santa Claus stuffing from 1995 uh, and a wig and a wig made of the same stuff underneath a black baseball cap. And I look up and I don't even for a second, I don't even recognize him as a human. I go, I'm looking, I'm looking at this thing and then it nods at me and I go, oh, that's a person. (laughs) And then then I nod back. Right. And I go, wow, that's a weird looking dude. It's costume night, huh? So I walk my dog. Walk takes about eight minutes around the around the uh, the complex here. I get back and there's a woman dressed in all black, same black hoodie, similar black pants coming down the same stairs where he was standing. She sees me now. She's wearing a a, co- a black COVID mask that goes over the top of her nose and beneath her chin, so it's pretty all the lower half of her face. All I see are her eyes, and she's wearing this obvious black wig, just obviously just a regular black wig, nice wig, to be honest. But you know, black wig. And she sees me at the top of the stairs. In hindsight, she turned around and went back up because she saw me. When mm-hmm. in in the moment. I saw her. She turned around. We. She went back up the stairs, and I thought to myself, "Oh, she forgot something, right? This is this is how, yeah. right? You don't go around thinking the worst of people, right?" So, I, do. <laughs> I will a little bit more after this event. Uh, and so <laughs> she she turns around. She goes back up the stairs. I I'm walking my dog up the stairs. I look over at the two of them. You know, just keeping just walking, looking at people, right? Not not investigating them. And they're rummaging through the plant. On this, on the outside of this place's apartment, just like they're digging for something or maybe thinking about moving the plant. And I think to myself, oh, those neighbors have some weird friends in costume coming over, helping them with their plants. This is what I think to myself, right? <laughs> uh, that my neighbors have some weird, really weirdly dressed, possibly have some really weirdly dressed friends that are helping them out at night 
Uh, so anyway, I come in my apartment. I tell my wife immediately, there's a strange ass couple across the way. Uh, they, she, they gave me the heebie-jeebies, but I said literally out loud, you got to give people the benefit of the doubt. Right. It's so I so often I think about Karen's calling the police on us when we're just taking our kids to the park because they don't because we aren't given the benefit of the doubt. Right. Let the person do something that's actually against the law before you go calling the police. Um, and so I saw this dude standing at the top of the stairs and I saw a woman dressed in black and they were rummaging through a plant. What do I know? You know, that's not I don't there's nothing illegal there. I'm not. But they definitely gave me the heebie jeebies because they were obviously in costume about. An hour and well, so that maybe two hours later, an hour and a half, two hours later, I hear police radios. I stand outside my balcony and my neighbors are outside of their door and there are four cops and they're looking, they're doing crime scene investigation. They were actively breaking into the house when I walked past them. It was a robbery in progress when I saw them. That's that's first of all, are you sure you grew up in Compton? Here's the thing I've uh, seen a lot of robberies. And no, if I'd have seen a robbery, no. I'd be like, I did grow up in Compton. House robbers in Compton are wearing regular clothes. They will well, walk. Yeah. They will walk into your house in jeans and a t-shirt. They'll look yeah, like these a. These guys are cat burglars. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't recognize that weird ass get up. I said, "What are you doing? This is this is a cliche of a burglar, not a real burglar." Hey, I, I think I agree with you though on, on giving people the benefit of the doubt. I just give it to them in different areas, like. I probably would have assumed they were robbing the house, but you know maybe that guy has just been using the wrong shampoo his whole life, and that's really his yeah, fear. and yeah, so, and I didn't see the chick on the first pass, right? On the first pass, it was just a dude standing there, so it's no 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 thing, right? It's just a dude standing on the porch. There's nothing. He looks weird as hell, but then on the second pass, him and the chick, and they're rummaging through the thing, through the plant. I go, ah, that's weird, but you know, I walk up the stairs, and it's all of all of five seconds that I'm looking at them. Uh, but then, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I gave my report to the police and my neighbors got robbed and I think they moved out today. <laughs> Freaking crazy, well, man. Yeah. People show up trying to do their best Ocean's Eleven impersonation on my house. I might be out of there too. What's a what's a story you can tell without names, uh, but just of growing up in the, in the hood, something that you've seen that's... <laughs> Oh man, I can tell you a bunch of them. Anyone? Um, here's a here's a funny one. It's well, it was kind of funny. Um, so one day after football, I was outside of my high school. Uh, my parents worked late, both of them, and uh, you know they would come pick me up at crazy hours. So sometimes I would be standing out like football would end at like six p.m. and then the school would close, and I'm just sitting on the front steps waiting for them to show up. Hmm. Um, so one day it was like it was a little earlier than normal, so everything wasn't totally closed. There was a guy, um I, I don't remember his name, I could tell you exactly what he looked like, but uh he walks up to me, he's talking mess, he gets all in my face, you know, and I'm just like, you know, I ain't scared of you How do in you? his face. And we're just I was like fifteen, maybe. Okay. I don't know. So this is a full, this is um, a man or another fifteen year old? This is like he's he was like seventeen, eighteen. Okay. Like he was he was a little older, but still in high school. Okay. Um, and I think he was like a dropout previously of, of our school. And he was just, you know, he was trying to live a thug life. Mm. So he was in my face talking all this mess. And I was like, dude, man, I ain't scared of you, man. Get out of my face. And he was just like, all right, cool, man. You know, I thought she was just a little, you know, uh, you know, a little B word. Mm. But, uh, you know, I respect you for, you know, standing up for yourself. And then he steps back and he had a knife in his hand. He was about to shank what um, and i didn't even know i was 15 i didn't even know i just got in this space um 
So he he like walks off. Um because I guess some teachers that came outside, they had seen it. And uh, so he leaves. They chase him off. And I sit back down, and I'm waiting. And then a friend of mine from grammar school that he had went to the high school with me briefly, um, he comes around the corner. He's looking yeah. all harried. And he, he transferred to a different school. And uh, he he comes over because we were right by the we were right by the red line, the train station stop. Mm. And he's like, he's like, oh, Brad, I'm glad you're still here. Yo, you think I could wait with you and then your parents can give me a ride home when you leave? And I'm like, yeah, don't you usually take the train? What's, where you been? Like, what, what's good? And mm. he's just like, oh, man, I was on the train. And this dude pulled out a knife and was robbing me. And the train stopped and the doors open. And I waited. And I just ran right as the door was closing. Mm. I got through and he didn't. Mm. And I just ran straight here. And I just happened to get off at 35th. So... I was just coming by it, you know, because I knew somebody would be over here. And I was just like, all right, cool. Yeah, we got you. But it was just like me and him went to different schools. We're in different areas. But we we got held at knife point Jeez on Louise. the same day. You know, it was just like it was just a thing that happened. You know Jeez. what I mean? So like, oh. and honestly, I haven't thought about that day until like today. So like <laughs> that happened and I, I forgot. So, yeah, like there was I mean, there was stuff like that all the time. So, um you know, my brother got into a knife fight on the train. My brother ran. <laughs> my younger brother, not the youngest one, but the the one in between, he he ran a, a underground fight club. At his nice. <laughs> he was beating kids up. Wait, was now be, was, was it consensual fights? If it was consensual yeah. fights, I'm yeah, ha- I'm like, all for it. On him, yeah, he was collecting yeah. money. He was like the bookie yeah. for the underground yeah. fight club, and he would participate in it. It was just the wildest crap. Um, but of course we couldn't we couldn't really pay for his high school, so he um he he was basically there because the the high school administrators kind of felt bad and wouldn't kick him out because we were poor. You know what I mean? Basically, and uh, like they knew we were just like, where is he gonna go? You know, like. Mm freaking phillips you know what i mean bogan like where is he gonna go so um yeah they were nice enough to not kick him out and like they would give us like crazy extensions on uh you know the the payment i think i think he waited almost two years still paying we were still paying for almost two years after he graduated for mm. him to get his transcripts because they wouldn't give his transcripts up because we were so far behind so it was like stuff like that man it there's tons of stories. There's tons of stories. I remember one day I was came. Uh, we went to uh, Universal, I think. I think I was in fifth grade. And we went to Universal. And my mom gave me a couple bucks to pick up some stuff, you know, souvenirs. So I was excited. So I had a pair of shades that I chose to buy on my own. Uh, and I was proud of my shades. I was wearing my shades. And I had, I had this new pair of shades. Couldn't wait to get home, show them to folks. Uh, and I'm walking from school. And the distance from Davis to my grandma's house has to be literally i don't want to exaggerate but i don't want to if it's 200 feet if it's 200 feet i'm surprised uh an nfl quarterback can throw from one property to the other for sure um, <laughs> so it's not very far at all to walk and so i'm walking i'm on the first of the two blocks that i'm gonna pass sideways blocks mind you to get there and this dude comes up to me now i'm in no not not fifth grade had to be sixth grade because I was at Davis and Davis is sixth, seventh, eighth. So this must have been sixth grade. So this eighth grader comes up and stands in front of me 
And he says, hey, man, those are nice shades. Let me check them out. And I go, okay, yeah. And I hand them to him. And I felt a little hesitant, but I'm a sixth grader. He's an eighth grader. He's probably got six inches on me. So what am I going to do? So I hand him my shades to check him out because he's also a shade aficionado like I am at this point. And he's trying them on. He takes them off. He says, oh, these are great. I'm going to go show them to my friend. And he starts to walk past me. And I put my arm out. I said, no, no, no. I said, let me take them home. I'll show them to your friend tomorrow. Just let me take them home and I'll bring them back. And let you show your friend the shades. He says, no, nah, I'm just going to show him. And he starts to push past me a little bit more. And I, I hold on a little bit more. And then he just gives it force. Boom. Pushes me. I, I fall the few feet off. And he walks away with my shades. So I run home crying. Uh, because what else yep. do you do? <laughs> yeah, that's how it goes, man. <laughs> but that goes. wasn't knife point. That was, I mean, so I got I got off pretty lucky that I was I was only robbed at fist point. Well, thankfully that guy wasn't robbing me. He was just trying to, I guess, check my gangster or whatever. But I mean, um, thankfully he was coming up cold, man. Yeah, he he was he was ready to shank me. But um, I've been man, I've been at gunpoint, I've been at knife point, I've been shot at. I, I think I was like eleven when I got shot at the first time. So hmm. I mean, it's just it was all kind of crazy. At stuff you? At you specifically? You I mean, or? I mean, they a... didn't want to kill. They weren't trying to kill me, but I was with somebody yeah. they were trying to kill at yeah. the time. Yeah. And they Jeez. were shooting at him. And he's what a, uh, a foot from was, you, right? There was a kid I played. Yeah, there was a kid I played little league baseball with, and I was like around, like I was, I was like walking back from like a candy store, and like I was seeing him, and I stopped and I was talking to him, and then you know a car goes creeping by, and you know they just started busting, so we just dove Jeez. behind some trees, behind some parked cars until it was gone. Well, nothing else. I mean, that was it. That was over. I was just like, well, that was scary. <laughs> you know what I mean? Did you get hit? I didn't get hit. All right, we good. Jeez. Do you know why they were aiming at your friend? I mean, he was banging. Like, oh, yeah. he was he was a rival? <laughs> he was banging, you know, so. Jeez. Um, you know, so, but, I mean, I've been chased through streets, through alleys. Like, man, it was crazy. I had this one time. This is probably the, scary, the most scared I've ever been in my life. I was like 14 15 maybe um and i thought i was a big shot you know what i mean like mm -hmm. i was i was in the weight room for football and working out and i was fast and i could run and jump and tough you know what i mean i've been in fights i won so i, I thought i was a big shot so i talked all this mess to my parents and i was just like i don't need y'all y'all always doing everything wrong blah blah gave them all kind of you know teenage hormonal bs and then jumped out the car and, and left. Just walked off into the night. Mm. And it was like 8 p.m. when I left. And I heard my mom like freak out. You better not let that boy walk off into the night. And my dad was like, no, nah, let him learn. You big man. You big man. Go and walk off into the night. See how fast you come back. So I was like, coming back. And I had it planned out in my head. I had some friends' houses that I was going to hit, and I was going to crash with them. And I walked off into the hood in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. at, like, well, it wasn't even the middle of the night. It was like 8 p.m. By about 9. Sun's down. Yeah, Streetlights are on. Sun was down. It was dark. It, was, it, was dark. it wasn't cold enough that people weren't outside. So, And I had my little backpack. My mm. dumb, Man, I was dumb. Um, So I'm walking through, like, just blocks. Of apartments you know what i mean like no no houses no property that people have to be accountable for mm. just the hood 
So, um, and this is this was in this was in Chatham in about two thousand five, two thousand six, somewhere around then. So, for context, uh, they tore down the projects in like. 2003 2004 they started tearing them down okay and then basically all the gangsters that was in the projects had to just go live with whoever had room for them mm. and that just absolutely royally screwed all of the somewhat peaceful balance that had been established and then things got really crazy around that time so mm. people was just out trying to make some you know trying to carve their own little niche out and uh I was just walking around in the streets, like totally oblivious to all this. And I got to one friend's house and they weren't home. And and I didn't have no cell phone or nothing. So I went to another friend's house and they didn't come to the door. And I was just like, damn, it's kind of far to the next one. And it's about 930. Mm-hmm. And I got to go back across 79th Street to go home. And 79th Street. You don't go to 79th Street. You don't go to 79th, huh? You do not. You do not go nowhere near. You don't go near 79th Street in a day. I'm looking at a map right now. Chatham, Greater Grand Crossing, Auburn, Gresham, Avalon Park. 79th and Eberhardt. I'm going to give you a a location around 79th and Eberhardt. Uh. And it was a little bodega that was about a block over on... um, Dang, what, what street is that? Right on the other side of Rhodes. I forget. St. Lawrence. That's the one. It was a little bodega on St. Lawrence. There was always people out there, you know, hooded up at. Um, and it was like a like a laundromat and a Burger King over there and all kind of weird stuff. So it was just it was just a bunch of restaurants, a bunch of stores, a bunch of people moving, and it was just a bunch of gangsters. So they just see this kid walk past with a backpack, looking like he don't belong, and they just I guess they assume I was like shuttling somebody drugs you know what i mean and they know who i was so i'm walking back trying to get back home it's about four blocks to get back to the crib you know not far but like half a mile so i'm walking i get about a block and this car it's like an old like cadillac driving down the street the wrong way and or no, he was driving down the right way at the time. So he's driving he's driving down the street the opposite way that I'm walking. Okay. And the car stops right next to me. And I'm like, oh, shit, here we go. And the door open, and I hear a sound like a pipe scraping on the ground. Just, you know, like pipe on concrete. You know what that sound is. Uh-huh. And I just hear, hey, what's up, little nigga? Where you going? And I was like, oh, shit. So I just ran. <laughs> mm. I just took off. I just started sprinting. Dude hops back in the car. I hear the door close. Tires screech. Cars reversing back towards me. Oh, so my god! So I turned gosh. down another wrong way street. Turned down another wrong way street. They come flying down the street the wrong way. I cut across the street because I know this one kid live around the corner from me. And I know the house next to his don't got no gate. So I could cut through that into the alley. Mm. And from the alley, if I could get down that one alley, then I'll be on my block going home if I could cross one more street. So mm. I'm 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 home free if I could get in this alley. So I was just booking as hard as I could. And not only was this car coming the wrong way down the street, but an SUV then starts coming down that street the wrong way too. 
so he so one car was coming east west the wrong way and then an suv just starts speeding down the block north south the wrong way right as i cut into that i don't think I, i'm pretty sure the suv didn't see me and i got into the alley i knew they didn't know where i was sprinted all the way back to the house get back to the door i'm banging on the door bang 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 dad open up bang 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 dad open up he come to the door he want to be all smug he's like well I'll see you came back. I'm like, dude, you got to open the door right now. It's people out here. And he was like, all right. So he opens the door, lets me in. Right as I'm getting in, the Cadillac comes out of the alley, three houses down from my house. Like, I'm entering the house, sliding yeah. in there, right as he's coming out the alley. Like, I saw the front of his car, and then I was inside. Yeah. It was like, it was that close. So I was, man, I was so fucking scared, bro. I thought I was going to get snatched up. And I was just like, nah, Joe, I'm never, no, no. <laughs> never going outside this late again and and man when i was in when i was a little young lad i did not i could avoid it so that was a pretty crazy time that's i mean that's i can't even i can't even imagine i can't even imagine having having an attacker i guess i guess the, the closest not i mean it's not really close because you were your attacker was there in the streets <laughs> ready ready to rob you or, or do whatever and so this, it's not really close but there was a situation where i was pulling up to a gas station and it was very dark and i was planning on getting out the car and then the, as i pull into the spot and there was no other cars around the gas station was closed now that i got up on it this dude pops out of a parking lot out of the shadows and is making eye contact with me and he's just beelining me uh, and it's about one in the morning in Pasadena. And I just keep the, I go out the parking lot. I drive, I keep driving. I never stop the car. Uh, and I look, and as I get on a freeway, I look back and I see him and he's looking in the, pretending to look in the gas station window, but he's actually watching me get on a freeway. I go, Oh, I was about to get robbed. Uh, so, but I mean, that's, that's the dangers. I mean, it reminds me of honor culture, right? This is what Coleman Hughes has said about, about our culture, which is that, so it's actually normal for young groups of young men uh size about 20 to 100 to band together to make violent groups to control territory that's our instinct yeah. that's our instinct yeah. and what what society has done for the ruling class and the descendants of the ruling classes is that they have policed and and civilized this behavior out of them they said look you have the police number here we have given over uh, violence to the state monopoly we all agree and we if you and when you grow up in that culture in which violence is uh, effectively and sufficiently and successfully handed over to the state you don't ha and you don't have to manifest your own f actual physical violence you can thrive in this world in which you don't have to manifest physical violence uh, and it's a great world it's called the west we're doing a pretty good job of it mostly but they didn't do it in our communities they didn't police it out of us it wasn't wasn't interesting and so they uh, they allowed honor culture to continue to thrive in our communities uh, where men form these groups of violent just quite naturally uh, form these groups to to go after territory and and all this stuff and just fight each other and kill each other uh, to the day to the day they leave yeah I, I like the way you described it as handing it over to the state rather than um getting rid of it because that's, that's really what it is because mm. it I, there's a lot of Eastern cultures where there ain't no, you know what I mean? There is no, there is no violent group that's, you know, uh, uh, 
just bearing down on on the world at large like or or at least it's it's extremely rare and extremely uh, uh it's, it's definitely not acceptable in their culture for that to be the case um and and here i think it's just been it's just been romanticized as this like oh well if you're a if you're a soldier if you're a policeman you're a hero like uh, no you know what i mean like that's not that's not how that works you're just you're just another gang you know what i mean yeah you're just you've got you've got your marching orders just like the kid who got to sell drugs on 79th and, and stoney you know like he got his orders you got yours so so that's that's not different to me i don't think it's been it's been stamped out of the culture so much as the people that want to pursue that the people that would pursue that is um it's acceptable for them it's 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 honored for them to be this violent gang you know that preys on you know other weaker people so it's uh yeah i don't know i just don't like uh i just don't like the the underlying idea in our western culture that i guess in there can be violence without some kind of retribution, you know, like there's no, there's no, there's no violence that goes totally unpunished, Mm. whether Mm. that's, whether that's a emotional cost that someone has to pay, whether that's a physical toll that gets exacted by someone looking for revenge, Mm. whether that's a financial penalty that happens to the culture as a whole, like there's some kind of cost Mm -hmm. For every act of violence, and in, in Western culture, we've got this idea that you can be a good guy and do untold amounts of violence, and then there's no cost because you're the good guy. And that's just that's just not the case because everybody's a good guy in their own story. Everybody's a good guy. I think we have a, uh, I think we have a fetish of good guys with guns. Uh, oh, if, you, if you look at, you can watch. And I, I thought about making this montage a couple years ago but who has the time but you could just collect footage of good guys right good guys just laying down ammunition john wick uh the guy from the lead character in zombies uh walking dead uh when he's shooting at other people now i'm not talking about when he's shooting at the the dead i'm talking about when he's shooting outside of the camper at other people just there's so many rambo there's so many hours terminator i mean the list goes on of good guys just firing indiscriminately and what i like to do <laughs> when, when i when i watch john wick painfully uh, i can't stand that series but when i watch john wick i like to say that oh look there's somebody's father that he just killed there's somebody's brother that he just killed there's somebody's son there's a father of three he just killed right there because <laughs> this dude yeah, is laying yeah, out yeah. hundreds john, wick, is, john uh, wick i think is a perfect example yeah i was thinking that too it's just so it's just so like it's a devaluing of human life. Glorification of violence. It's, yep. it's, a, it's astonishing. And I've got now. I, I had this argument. I mean, I wouldn't call it an argument. Fun discussion uh, of John Wick with a coworker who really liked the series, and he said, I, "I think it's a fair point." He said to him, "It's cartoon violence, right? And so it's mm. video game violence. It's over the top, unrealistic. It's it's." Throwing a knife in the air, shooting a guy with a gun, getting the handle of the knife stuck in the gun, then using the gun as a handle and stabbing the guy behind you without looking, right? It's just, it's cartoon. Yeah. It's unrealistic. And so he divorces 
reality from it and then he can just enjoy what he, he i guess he views it as a bit of whimsy uh but for me i i don't see well i was gonna say i don't see the utility in seeing the whimsy and violence but i played a whole lot of grand theft auto grand theft auto san andreas so i can't really say that um no i i get that and it's there's a i think there's a a place for that for that whimsy and for that um you know like you said cartoon violence but the problem that america faces is that america is too young to have a soul Hmm. and whatever beast inside of you you feed that's the one that grows and the one we feed is the one that loves guns Hmm. and that loves violence and that loves taking and harming and that's going to destroy this country culturally first and then economically hmm. and then finance or and then and then i guess politically yep. if it's not curtailed so i don't think there's a so, chance so we're curtailing it i'm actually on the i'm on the side that is i'm i'm preparing for the uh, eventuality as i see it probably in, in our lifetimes that the united states falls from the center of the world culture uh, that we do we devolve into some semi-relevant mess of people that just con- will continuously fight over things that the, the rest of the civilized world has solved long ago um i think that's what we're in for for the rest of our lives to be honest uh, I, you know what i'm prepared for that i think whenever that happens i'm just gonna move to the country that has the best racetracks and then i'll i'll <laughs> live out my days there horses it's our what? Horse horse tracks or cars? No, 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 cars, cars. Oh, really? Cars? You like car racing? Oh yeah. What oh, type? Yeah. I do what, a lot of that. You do car racing? I, I I like going fast. I think is is really what it comes down to. Is there yeah, is there a limit to what you can say on the public record about car racing? Um, what do you mean? I don't know. I don't know anything about the car racing culture. To me, it's a well, to me it's a well, an abstract idea. Car racing. Yeah, there's legal car racing and there's not legal car racing. I I used to do the not legal kind and now I don't, thankfully, and and now I do the legal. Kind. Really? Tell me about car racing. When was the last time you did a race? What do you race? Uh, man, the last time I did an actual race was years and years ago when I fixed my um my grandpa's car. He had a Toyota MR2 that he bought. Hmm. And then my dad had it and then he didn't really have like the time or the money to keep up to keep up with it, and it started like you know rusting and falling into disrepair. So I just took it off his hands, hmm. um, and then and then restored it myself. And I still have it. I love that car to death. And uh, I used to I used to fly around Chicago racing anybody who'd stop at a light with me. Um, and then you know there's there's the like an actual car racing scene underground Chicago that you know. Where especially down underneath Wacker Drive, it used to be down there all the time, um, and this is years and years ago. But uh, there'd be you know a couple dozen guys out there, and then you know you'd race all through there, and it was it was pretty wild. It was pretty fun. But uh, I, I prefer the I prefer the legal kind now. Hmm. It's much less dangerous, obviously, to yourself and to others. I do not endorse doing that i was young and very stupid yes um, when i used to do that and uh yeah it's just it's just not advisable to to do that you can do that very legally damn near for free if you do like auto crossing and stuff 
Hmm. Um, and people will time you. People will tell you if you're good or not. Yeah. You know, and you can yeah. actually challenge yourself and get better and improve. And that's kind of where I've been at. You don't have to break the law to drive fast. There are, there are legal ways of driving fast. We we right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and that's definitely how you want to go about it, you know. So, uh, it, it's put it this way you can have a lot of fun doing something really stupid until it ruins your life, or you can have a lot of fun doing things the right way and not only get praised for it and not only be like heralded if you're really that good. Mm. Um, but it can be something that, you know, not only that you share to yourself, but something you can share with other people. So, um, there's definitely a right way and a wrong way. And, and, um, I used to be on the wrong side of it and now I'm not. So I dig it. I dig it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I never ran with a, a dangerous crew. Uh, I did. Let me see. What's the, what's the statute of limitations on this thing? Statute of limitations on this thing. Let's see what Google says. Nope, too long ago. So I used to run with the with a bad crew, uh, but we I never did anything too crazy, too crazy. Never killed anybody or anything like that. Uh, mostly just drugs. I ran with the druggy crew, and uh, I tell you, there was a time. So not not exactly like the story where you got almost got stabbed, but so I was in this house full of druggies and I took a nap, uh, which is rare for druggies of the particular type that I was hanging out with. But I took a nap. I woke up and my drugs were gone. And I said, uh, OK. So I went to the guy whose house I was in. I said, hey, where are my drugs? And he said, I don't know. I said, fine. So I left about nine months later. Uh, he says, hey, man, I want to apologize to you. I said, apologize? What for? He says, remember that day you were taking a nap and you woke up and your drugs are gone? I said, yeah, I remember that. He said, yeah, well, my girlfriend took them while you were asleep and I had a loaded shotgun pointed at your head in, in case you got mad, you know, that she took them. And, uh, you know, I want to apologize for that. <laughs> so I said, thanks. I said, thanks for apologizing. Uh, and, you know, after that, I realized that my mother could have lost her son and I would have never known the difference. I simply wouldn't have woken up, but she would have had a lifetime of torment because I was hanging out with these people. Um, yep. Yep. It's tough, man. You got to, yep. you know, to all the young people listening and uh, try to learn from the mistakes of, you know, you got to make some mistakes yourself, uh, but try not to make the, the mortal ones, the life risking ones. You don't have to make those yourself. There's no there's no rule that says you have to make those mistakes. My my grandma, my grandma would always say, uh, she would always say, Brad, there's two ways to learn a lesson. You can learn the easy way, you can learn the hard way. And I see you really like to learn the hard way. Mm. Um, and and that was kind of my, like, I didn't trust people's word. You know what I mean? I didn't take people's word for nothing. And that's, it. to be fair, that stood me in great stead in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's also led me to do a lot of dumb mess that i really should not have been doing and uh I, and that's just you know you live and you learn and, and if you get the opportunity some people don't then you can you can learn to make up for these mistakes and you can learn to grow and and kind of guide people away from that but man take people's word you know what i mean when they say yo that's a bad idea don't do that sh-. just just take their advice sometimes man because that was a crap 
that yeah. we used to get into, man, was just not cooth at all. And you really just there was nobody had no business doing none of it. I can say that I'm actually uh, grateful that I took the advice of uh, all the many people who said you need to stick to school. Uh, and now understand, I understand that school isn't for everyone, and I'm not saying the case, but my aptitude happened to be just scholastic rote learning. Uh, and so I fit in there once I applied myself. And so I did really well. And that was a, that was a mistake that I didn't have to learn on my own. Uh, I didn't have to jack up my shot at higher education and, and academic success in order to to get it. Uh, for me, it was a little delayed, but I'm happy I went that route. Yeah, that's good. I got fortunate there. <clears throat> they say some people see the light, some people feel the heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. I like that. What are I your heat people? What are your I, I like religious it. views? Oh boy. Well, so here's here's the thing. I was raised Catholic. I was raised Roman Catholic. I went to Catholic grammar school, Catholic mm. high school, or, well, Christian high school, not technically Catholic. But I went to church so many times, I cannot tell you the number, and I've read the Bible cover to cover more than once. And uh, But I'm also, like I said, somebody who questions everything. Like, every last piece of my day, I examine with a fine tooth comb to make sure it makes sense. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. I don't take anything for granted and that has lent itself well to an understanding of science, to an understanding of the world, the universe at large. Like I absolutely love astrophysics. Mm -hmm. I, there's not a lot of people who will say that because that makes me kind of a huge nerd, but like, I, I just, I just love it. I love thinking about, things that are unknowable, things that we don't have answers to and trying to just come up with answers, you know, trying to trying to understand things that are probably well beyond any human brain. Um, and that does not drive very well with religion. Um, but from a scientific perspective, I can't tell you God doesn't exist. I, I don't have any proof. Uh, uh, by the same token, you don't have any proof that he does. So I'm just kind of agnostic. I mean, if he's if he's there, cool. Uh, I try to live my life in a way that people would look at me and say, that's a good person. He doesn't hurt anyone uh, who doesn't deserve to be hurt or he doesn't hurt anyone for any reason other than to protect others. Um, and he's and he's, you know, always trying to help people who are disadvantaged. So I think if I get to the pearly gates and there are pearly gates there, I'll be a little surprised. Um, but not a lot surprised. And uh, I think if God looks at me and goes, well, you tried to live your life as a moral person and help those who needed help and, you know, uh, protect those who needed protecting and and love and care for people around you. Uh, but you didn't, you know, swear fealty to my son. So fuck you, you burn for a billion years, and I'm gonna be like fuck you too, bro. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, mm. Deuces, and I'm gonna jump in the lake of mm -hmm. fire or whatever. You know, so like that's just kind of how I roll. So no regrets. I just I don't know. I can't I can't read a book that was written by a dude who lived in a cave five thousand years ago and go. I'm just gonna listen to this more mm. than I listen to my own intuition and my own ability to like find answers in the world around me. 
something that shook me from organized religion uh, several years ago was the understanding that the reality that the authors of these holy books lived in and experienced that gave them this this vivid and and helpful wisdom is this reality that I'm I'm in it too. I'm still in it. As a matter of fact, I'm in the more recent version. <laughs> right? They're in the old school version. Right? So the the Bible is kind of like Windows 92 or whichever 95, right? It, hey, it's the classic, right? And it's yeah. got it's got a lot of good a good value to it, much more than Windows 95. I do believe there's a deep wisdom in the Bible that can't be readily regurgitated because it's a collection of wisdom from several okay. generations. But that's not to say that what I say that to say that this reality, this one right here that we're in right now is the same reality that the authors of the Bible were in. And we're in it with a lot more knowledge of what actually of what's actually going on than they had. Mm. And so this is a better place to stand when it comes to developing a theology. We don't have to depend on the the insights of shepherds. Uh, we've got astrophysicists whose insights <laughs> we can lean on. Yeah, yeah, agreed, agreed. And that's and that's kind of where I stand on that. I, I'm right with you on that. It's just, you know, why would you why would you look through a scanning electron microscope and then look up and then look at the Bible and say, no, the answer's in there? You know, like, what? huh? Is it? Yeah, I like to imagine that. I don't know if I I don't know if I believe this. I'm, I'm struggling with whether I believe this or not, because I don't know if I actually act this out. But I like to imagine that there is a God that we cannot surprise right there is a god that is the the first mover the original god the source of all things that we are all a small part of and there's no surprising this god because this god is already all of the things there's no there's no way of surprising him uh, him or her whatever however you want to refer to it it whatever there's no surprising it uh then underneath that i think there's a layer of gods that we can surprise. Uh, and so I like to imagine some gods doing an experiment in which they make a magic dust and then they blow it up to see, okay, out of this magic dust, how many of the life forms that evolve can survive being drugged into the center of the supermassive black holes that are at the center of the galaxies? How many can make it out? And then of those that make it out, bah, 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 right, they're doing some, they're doing some task. Uh, and we are just a manifestation in one step along their series of tasks they're do that they're doing. And so that the challenge, if uh, the, the mission set before us, if we choose to accept it, is to survive being drawn into the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy. Uh, I think that's a, a philosophy, a way of describing this world that we find ourselves in, surprisingly, that can unite us. Uh, it would be helpful to have some underpowered uh, antagonistic aliens but of course the chance that there are aliens that know we're, that we're here and they're underpowered is almost zero so we really don't want that um, that's what I like to think uh, religiously so to speak that that there's a god that we can't surprise and then there are many gods that we can <laughs> yeah, yeah no I, I like that I like that a lot and it's a lot of my well I mean yeah a lot of my philosophy kind of draws from um, I guess I guess what I can observe and to, to make a point though we won't get drawn into the supermassive black hole in the center because our the sun is in a stable orbit and the supermassive black hole it, 
it doesn't. It's not sucking any harder as not, the days go by. Well, it's not to try to pull things in. It doesn't need so to suck harder. So as long harder. as you stay in that stable orbit, you'll be in that stable orbit forever. You're not going to slow forever? down forever. So you're probably good there, which is great news. Forever uh, though, you think the you think the yeah. uh, Milky Way galaxy is going to stay outside of the supermassive black hole forever? That's 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 kind of how it works. And and actually, they, I don't they, think so. The, the supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way is called Sagittarius A star. Mm-hmm. Um. And and the star is just like an asterisk at the end of the name. It's Sagittarius A and then asterisk. So Sagittarius A star, they're actually not sure that it's a supermassive black hole, if I if I recall correctly. There was a theory that it might be something else. So um, I'm not sure what. I, I would have to go and look back at that uh, uh, that paper. But um, yeah, the point being that there's there's no there's nothing in space to slow you down. By running into it, and no, obviously no, Newton says if you're, once you're moving, you move forever at that speed. And as long as we move forever at the speed we're at, and the black hole doesn't get any bigger, then we're outside of its sphere of influence. We're just, it's just like the Earth orbits the sun until the sun blows up, you know, or well, expands and swallows it. Yeah, yeah, you get what I'm saying. See, we're, just, we're in a stable orbit. We're it's good. my understanding that. Uh, that black holes go between supermassive black holes go between phases of uh, is it called accretion uh, where they're active and then when they're dormant. So when they're active and they've they've got this disk that they've that they're consuming, then they're also consuming that disk. But the gamma rays coming out the poles are pushing everything else away. And then when they eat up the disk. There's nothing in their immediate range that that they're going to pull into the event horizon, and then their effect is then they're seen as seen as dormant. But their actual influence extends well beyond the reach of the visible visible galaxy, such that the rest of the matter is slowly falling in, just not quickly. But at some point, it will begin feeding again, uh, and then that cycle will continue until there's nothing but a supermassive black hole and no more galaxy. It's not so that's close um so you're correct about like the accretion disk uh so the accretion disk is basically uh think of it as matter getting in a line while it's falling in um and and basically what it is is uh if you so black holes are tiny um and that's this they're supposed to be theoretically they're an infinitely small mm-hmm. point so mm-hmm. just like Imagine like a grain of sand and then infinitely smaller than that. Like that's the actual black hole. Mm-hmm. It's based on how much stuff is in that tiny point determines how big its sphere of influence is, its gravitational pull, and how big the event horizon is, which is the point that you can't get back out. Because no, you can't go faster than the speed of light, so light can't get out, so neither can you. So the accretion disk is basically like the cue that forms when there's all this there's a giant star that's getting sucked into a tiny tiny point so it kind of swirls around it the matter squishes against each other the pressure from being pulled that strongly pushes the matter together it gets really hot it becomes plasma it's millions of degrees that's where the, the gamma radiation comes from there's all kinds of radiation obviously uh, infrared you know uh, ultraviolet uh, every kind of radiation you can imagine gets created by that kind of like heat and pressure so that's what that accretion disk is and as the black hole feeds it does get larger but Stephen Hawking also proves that black holes evaporate 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they release. Uh, well, t- there's debate about whether it's information or whether it's just matter, but uh, they release matter back into the galaxy as they uh, uh, as they continue to exist. It's just it's just a constant evaporation mm-hmm. of that of that matter that it has accumulated. So every black hole will eventually spit out everything that was ever sucked in so so yes, we can so we can imagine it this way matter, we but can, they also regurgitate it let's say let's say instead then the challenge the challenge set before us by the by the aliens by the gods that we can surprise is which species will make it out of the galaxy if if one that's, that's a good one so i like I really like anything that focuses on humans kind of overcoming this dependence on Earth. Mm. And the reason being is that, uh, you know, we've been talking this whole time about all this strife, all this struggle, all this uh, uh, infighting that humans do to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the way I see it, dude, the, the galaxy, the universe is so freaking big. It's so wildly arrogant for us to think that we're alone. Mm. That if we're not prepared, we'll very quickly come up on a time that we realize permanently that we're not alone uh, and or someone else realizes that we're here. And, and think about this. What are gods but people that are above your station in the universe? Mm-hmm. Um, you A sufficiently advanced alien civilization could be considered gods to us. Mm-hmm. They would be essentially gods to us. They might live 50,000 years. They might have infinite wells of knowledge they might be impervious to any kind of physical damage we could try to inflict to them they could live and operate in higher dimensions than us or lower one we don't know so um think of it this way if you had if there were if there was a colony of ants that lived right outside your front door and one day you heard a weird noise coming out your front door and you go and you open the front door and you go uh what's what's this noise what's this noise and you go, and there's a bunch of ants dancing in a circle in a very prescribed, uh, uh, ritualistic way, and they're chanting your name because they know your name. And they're just like, Kari, Kari, Kari. And then you'd probably be like, what the fuck? So you'd probably go like, all right, what do y'all want? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just, mm-hmm. just out of just like, what the hell are you ants doing? And they would be like, oh, my God, the god has responded to us. We need a sugar cube. And you mm-hmm. go... All right, I can do that. So you give them a sugar cube. And to them, you've just materialized like a a year's worth of food out of nowhere because they summoned you by chanting your name. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? You're Mm -hmm. a god to Mm -hmm. those ants. Uh, There could very well be civilizations that have been around for millions of years in our own galaxy. We wouldn't know. The, the, The total distance that radio signals have traveled of any kind that reveal our existence to the galaxy is like maybe a couple hundred light years that's 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 the most that's mm-hmm. the biggest sphere like maybe we'll say 150 light years the the first radio signals were actually mm-hmm. detectable out in space mm-hmm. and 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 like if you were looking through our atmosphere to determine whether there were like you know hydrocarbons and stuff in our atmosphere you could probably see within the last like thousand years that there was probably an advanced civilization doing stuff that doesn't seem natural on this planet. So 
if you're not within a thousand light years, it's not possible that in the galaxy, according to our understanding of physics, that aliens even know we're here. And the galaxy is a hundred thousand light years across. So we we have no idea what's out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah I'm with be, you. You're so new that they might not know we're here. So no, so we're on the sick. we're on the same page about that about what the what the gods say or don't say about God. where we where we might be. But what do you think about what the gods say about what we might do? Which is the other part of religion that is so cherished because it gives us this list of ways to behave, uh, which the universe doesn't tell us how to behave. Right? The the stars and the galaxy and and, uh, and the black holes and the planets. They don't tell us how to behave. They don't tell us how to act. Uh, we have these instincts that tell us how to act. And we try to articulate them and we compare them with others and we see how others have acted and, and do that. And so I believe that religious texts are compilations of the best behaviors. And I think that's our quest. I think our quest really is for the best behaviors. Now, ultimately, I think we have a quest for the best genetic code, but the the connection between behaviors and genetic code is very complex and we aren't touching it. If somebody says, oh, you're acting this way because your genes are this, you don't know that. Nobody knows that. That's a long way before we get there. And so what we need to do is look at how people behave and say, okay, these are the best behaviors in this scenario, uh, in this context. And religion gives us that, right? Um, I mean, we all uh, you know, think about the do unto others, right? That's that's a powerful statement. That's a powerful moral right there. Do unto others. Uh, be kind and, and and give of yourself and sacrifice yourself and things like this. Um, where do you get that from in your in your worldview? Um, <laughs> my philosophy is pretty simple. Um, I think that I think that every man should have obviously every man or woman. I, I say man is is inhuman. Hmm. Uh, every human should have the uh at least the privilege of self-determination is is you should be able to determine who and what you want to be you should be able to pursue that and no one should impede you based on where you were born what you look like what you're what they think you're capable of i think you should you should have the ability to succeed or fail at what you choose to succeed or fail at um, now, do you describe that as a Judeo-Christian ethic? No, no. I would I would describe that as a humanist ethic. Hmm. Um, and, and I don't I don't care if it's you know if you're you know a, a guy who who grew up in the Middle East, or if you're a guy who grew up in communist China, hmm. if you grew up. I don't I don't care about any of that. Hmm. It's the only thing that matters is. You are a unique human. You're no, there is no one else that is quite you. Mm. There's no one else that's quite capable of what you're capable of. There's no one else that can offer humanity what you can offer exactly. Mm. And every for humanity to be its best for for us as a whole, as a species, as a as a community, you know, one world to to make the best world possible, we have to let everyone be their best self mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh so there's there's no there's no moral uh religious undertone to that to me it's it's just purely from a humanist perspective and from kind of a futurist perspective i suppose um and and i just I, you know like you're 
I think we talked about a little bit when you were when you were here uh, last time was like uh, you know your your ability to be free ends where you know your ability to swing your arm ends when it impacts my face. Mm-hmm. So so all of my morals kind of center around that is you should be free up to the point where you're not harming anyone else's opportunity to be free. And and that's where your freedom ends and someone else's begins. Now how do you how do you navigate the concept that if I have done well for myself, so I have built a business, uh, that business is incredibly profitable, it's international, uh, it's made me a lot of money, I've taken that money to, I've invested it, I've started a foundation, and now I've got, let's say, uh, $900 million uh, net worth, mm-hmm. and I'm in my late 50s. So mm-hmm. then, and I live in California, and then all of a sudden, California says, you know what, 900 millionaire, uh, we're going to take... 30% of your money because you made more than everyone else. How is that free, right? How is, isn't my limber, isn't my liberty being impinged when that happens as a, as a wealthy person? Well, you, you made that $900 million totally by yourself. Nobody helped. You, you drove along roads that you paved yourself. You called people on the phone lines that you erected. You used the electricity that you generated by pedaling a bicycle. Like no, this is, this is a community. You you can't have a successful business. But where is the where does the right where does the right to tax come from? The right to tax comes from the social contract that we all agree to live by. Um, it's 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 the political philosophy of this country that assigned the right to tax to you know republicly you know or, or uh, you know elected officials in a republic. So. Um, you know, I didn't, it's not quite democratic, but it's it's close. And um, you know, any 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 currency is going to have rules for how it operates. That's just kind of uh, a currency is nothing but a bartering system to exchange value. And the value that you've accumulated as a you know multimillionaire, or whatever, is the collective work of a million people that you've never paid. Um. And if we determine as a society, like, hey, you know, this guy's doing great, but, you know, he's he's kind of stomping on the graves of, you know, 100,000, you know, disadvantaged, impoverished people, whatever. And uh, there's nothing being done to make that equitable. Then we need to do something forcibly. Then that's fine. That's 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 reasonable to me. See, I don't think I don't think that's the. I agree that the 900 millionaire that doesn't want to pay taxes is a problem, but I don't think that's the I wouldn't frame it that way. So what I'm thinking of it is as a tumor. So a tumor is doing its job as a cell, right? Cells are supposed to divide some some cells more than others, but a lot of cells. That's their job. Their job is divide, make more of themselves. That's good. We want cellular division in order to have a healthy body. But sometimes that division goes awry and some cells begin to use and hoard more resources than is helpful to the organism to the point that they now become a drain on the organism. They're harming the organism by hoarding that amount of resources. Uh, And so that's Mm -hmm. the way I categorize uh, obscenely wealthy individuals that aren't participating in the futuring of the of the civilization anymore right hedge fund managers that just make their billions buy tons of property make more billions and go everything's fine here (laughs) no it's not fine uh you need to be doing something with that money uh and so if i feel like tax is our collective 
um, just forcing them to to sh- to participate to share uh, because it's yeah. society's bigger than them. But I would prefer, I would much prefer. For one, I think our tax code needs to be reformed and made much much higher. But I see, I like Elon Musk. Elon Musk, his primary mission is to help the culture. And then mm-hmm. when he, as after after he's helping the culture, he says, "And I'm going to make a bunch of money doing it for sure to make it sustainable." But I'm going to help first. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. Bezos is similar. At least he no. was. At least he was, right? So Amazon, Amazon, no, Amazon was the reason Amazon is the biggest and best is because they were laser focused on customer service. Now you have to admit, dealing with Amazon is a breeze. I love dealing with Amazon in a world in which it's an absolute pain to deal with nine hundred out of a thousand companies. Amazon mm-hmm. is wonderful. I can call them on a Sunday and talk to somebody who speaks English and get some, get my refund and my package delivered the next day. Uh, it's incredible. And so their focus, their their ability to deliver that level of customer service, I feel, is what propelled them to the number one spot. Now, to be fair, I feel like Jeff Bezos is now making a making a mess of it and becoming this thing that we've all have learned to hate. Uh, just sitting at the spot and then just milking his workers and being having people fired by robot and all sorts of crap uh, and of course stealing other people's ideas and then pumping his own amazon brand products on the front uh, i complained about that non-stop uh, but i wanted to say that the founding principle that got bezos to the top and elon to the top and bill gates to the top to the extent that he was less so the oil billionaires but i suppose they did it too or levi's billionaires from russia uh, is that they pr- created a product that the common found useful and if you can serve the common then i think you deserve whatever wealth comes your way from the common uh you but just hoarding it is i think is cancerous yeah i agree i i think we're saying the same thing Hmm. uh in different ways personally i i don't think that um that is wrong to be rich i I don't think that's Hmm. a that's an inherently immoral there's a lot of people saying that today there's a lot of people saying that there's there's a there's a I think there's a cutoff point. Um, in it's a billion dollars for a lot of people. Erase, eradicate all billionaires. I, I don't agree with that. Mm. I don't agree with that. I think as, as much as he might be the closest thing to a supervillain that we have, Who I think Bezos? Elon Musk is probably... Elon Musk? No, Elon Musk is probably the closest thing to a supervillain. Supervillain? Supervillain? Absolutely. What? Absolutely. 100%. He's, he's, he, is, he is Lex Luthor without anyone who is supervillain. <laughs> Um, what? And I love Elon Musk. I love that guy. Don't get me wrong. I I, tr- I tried to work for SpaceX. They wouldn't let me. Mm. But um, I, I think he's I think he's doing a, a wonderful thing for the environment, the for Lord's the planet, work. or uh, for our species, getting us off of this one planet. Uh. Like he's 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 absolutely amazing. However, he kind of has this slightly sociopathic tendency to just ignore laws. And uh, there's no there's no amount of good intention that can that can make that totally okay. Does what that make laws? Sense? I mean, yeah, I'm I'm for abiding oh, by the law. What so, laws is he breaking? So so uh, just recently, SpaceX has been doing like unsanctioned uh, launches of their new satellites because he's trying to do the satellite constellation to give internet to everybody on the planet. And that's cool. It's great. And he wants to like have like uh, uh, unlimited text messages between here and Mars. Like, cool. Good for you, Elon Musk. That's awesome. However, 
you can't just throw satellites into orbit without permission. Like, that causes a, a myriad problems mm. that I won't even go into right now. But mm. you, so, so that's just one thing. He He's threatening, like, moving Tesla because, you know, the, like uh, he doesn't like the way that... Uh, California was handling the the pandemic and and their restrictions on whether his plant could be open and he was like fuck that we're gonna work anyway and he had his people coming to work in you know uh, uh, potentially harmful conditions when COVID had first arrived so like that's pretty super villainy to me um, and you can't be above the law you can't like nobody can be more important than the rest of the people around you. That's that's what being above the law kind of means, is that you think you're more important than everybody else that you're working for. Well, if you were that important, why are you doing all this for somebody else? Then the 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 end result of your action should be to empower everybody else. Mm -hmm. So you can't do that by taking advantage of them. And and I think there's I think there's a cutoff point. I don't think it's a billion dollars. I think it varies based on who's doing what with what resources i can know? actually say one way in which i pretty close to know uh, i wouldn't use a powerful it's not a capital k no but it's a lowercase no because it's secondhand i talked to the person who claimed firsthand uh, that they mm -hmm. he worked for spacex and he said they tell you in the interview uh up front we expect 60 hours of work a week right this is the agreement 60 hours and you know that going in so you go okay fine you agree to a salary then when you get your check it's for 40 hours a week, but it's the amount that you agreed to. And so he yeah, thinks, that's yeah, that's, that's well, that's he, he thinks they're doing some, some finagling. So here's the thing, but it's, is it theft? They're, they're stealing from the state somehow, maybe because they're not stealing from that person. No, they're, stealing from the, they're stealing from the people. They're, they're stealing, stealing from the time. people somehow. No, well, no wait, No. So they, they talked to this person. He agreed to 60 hours a week. And he and he's get the money that he agreed to. It's just that on the check it says forty hours, and so he goes. If I hand, if I hand you a gun and tell you to shoot me, and you shoot me, did you? Do I not get hurt? Like, no, it, it, but it's not. It's not a, it's not a shot. It's not a shot. It it's it's more. It's more. If I shot. if I ask you, it's more. If I ask you for ten pieces of bread, and then you give me ten pieces of bread in a bag labeled twenty. <laughs> I go, this is no, a bit strange. It's, it's more, it's more into, I would argue that it's more akin to if you're the customer and you come into my store uh -huh. and you say, hey, I need 10 pieces of bread. Uh -huh. And I go, 10 pieces of bread costs 10 cents. And okay. you go, okay, that's, that's a dollar. Fair. And I go, but to buy 10 pieces of bread, you have to give me 20 cents. And you're like, well, don't I get another 10 pieces of bread? And I'm like, no, you get 10 pieces. No, of bread. but that's not that's not. So the guy is getting what that's he agreed to get paid. He, he's getting what he is. So so he says he says they say we need you to work 60 hours a week. He says, OK, I'll work 60. And they say we will pay you 180 a year. He says, OK, I'll do it for 180. And when he gets his check, which is one twenty sixth of one hundred eighty thousand dollars, which is what he agreed to. So it just says 40 hours. Yeah, and that's because he's not unionized, and that's because he doesn't have. But who's yeah? Who's getting who's right getting screwed there? Get Somebody's getting screwed. Time. I think it's I think it's the state he, somehow. No, How's it him? The guy, because because he should be getting paid overtime for working more than forty mm. hours. A week. Mm. That's the social contract that we're that we're supposed to abide yeah, by. Yeah, it's it's oh, okay, that. okay. That's what it, so it's by by making him hourly, technically hourly, 
and not salary, they're dodging overtime laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Making salary instead of hours. Yeah, why don't they just... And so so like I said, that's second that's secondhand. I talked to the guy who, who claimed that. I mean, I, I had that conversation with him directly, So, but I didn't see the yeah. check or anything. But he told me that firsthand. Yeah, if that's the case, then, then I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, wage theft is probably the number one crime that occurs in the United States. We just hmm. don't call it a crime. Um, I mean, that's just that's just how it is. So they I, ask anybody who's ever been on salary, they ask you to work more immediately. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like you're like, oh, you're always on time when you're on salary. I had a, yeah, I have a cousin. I have a cousin who put it forward, and I think you might like this argument. He said that, and I don't know if he still stands by this, so this was years ago, but it was interesting when he said it. He said, we need to prosecute the active and something like malicious loss of an arbitrary loss of wages for 300 years of slavery and prosecute it that way mm-hmm. as a loss of wages lawsuit and have reparations paid uh as a loss of wages and ca- and do that math and calculate what that economic value would be in today's dollars it was some some astronomical number yeah like i i told you i told you at the beginning of this conversation it don't matter we can we can calculate it any way you want they can't afford it Mm. That's that's really what it come down to. But I, I I'm an Elon super fan, so it's interesting that you say that he's a super villain. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I love the guy. Mm. I love the guy as much as possible to love a super villain. I love the guy. You know what I mean? Like it's it's not. I I hope he succeeds at everything he's trying. Well, you know not if I mean? he's a I villain. I, not if he's a villain. You don't. It's, it's how he goes about it that makes him a villain, not his end goal. You know what I mean, and so and he's if, and if he, so he's Robin if, Hood. Wait, he's more like reverse Robin Hood. Reverse Robin um, Hood. He's giving yeah, to the rich while. <laughs> what is reverse he's, Robin he's, Hood? He's stealing from the poor, giving to the rich, but he's also doing things that are great for humanity as a whole. So, all right, all right, I'll let you do that. Like you can get away with that one. You know what I mean? Mm. It's just one of those. It's just one of those like. All right, dude. I see. I see you doing good things in a really fucked up way, but nobody else is doing them. So how I'll are just let they? You, slide. I, you know what? I have to. I have to give you that. Yeah, he's he pushes the limits. I would. I would guess. I would say that. Like the working it, conditions of his Tesla factory have been awful. Like people sleeping on the floor. People don't go home because they work nonstop, and he's still calling them. People complain. He fires them. Like it's. It's been it's been some pretty crazy stuff. I know a bunch of people that work for SpaceX too, like a bunch of people. Mm. I won't name anybody, obviously, because that's no, that's no. wrong. But but I know a lot, and and they are like generally like smart, happy people, and they're satisfied with the work they do. But nobody there, nobody I know of, like they take it super serious. Like if they they are up at like five in the morning, making sure that they're at work on time, mm. you know, and it's. And, and it's it's and it's around the corner, you know. Like they go, they go. But that's not a that's not a bad thing, right? Go, like, wake up at five to make sure you're working on time. Five. That's a good thing, right? Waking up, waking up three hours early to make sure you're there for a fifteen minute drive. That smells to me that somebody is not working in a uh, in a wholesome working environment. Put it that way. See, uh, I would I would suspect if someone's got to get up at five to make a fifteen minute drive to be at work on time, I would say that you don't your your morning routine is not efficient. Uh, or or it is, but uh, you know, because like you know, they do other things, but uh, you know, go for a morning run or whatever. True, they do. true. Uh, but but the point being that they're they're, in my experience, kind of terrified of not being there on time. Mm. 
Mm. And that's not a that's not an equitable working condition. You know what I mean? Elon Musk is great, but he can't do any of what he's doing by himself. There's no like he sure he might be able to design the rocket by himself, but he sure as fuck can't build it by himself. Mm. You know mm. what I mean? Like he can't drive it to the launch pad by himself. Mm. He can't, you know, pave the roads that it takes to get there. He can't calculate every single orbital trajectory of every satellite to make sure that his don't run into that one and then cause a chain reaction that blows up all the satellites in the sky. Like he can't do all that stuff by himself. So he can't be the only guy that benefits financially from the work that he does. And that's why I don't like the billionaire thing, because once you get to that level, it gets very, very, very uh, hard to justify the disparity in working and living conditions between, you know, your your top engineer who makes 500000 a year and you, you know, who who has, you know, 70% of the stock of the company and basically unlimited value, $180 billion, whatever he is at right now. So uh, even that, like 500000 a year is a ton of money. That's an insane amount of money. But, you know, it, billionaires are just like, it's, it's mind-boggling. Have you ever the seen the elephant curve of global wealth inequality? So the there, yeah, there's, a, there's a curve called the elephant curve of global wealth inequality. So what has happened, part of what's happened over the past 50 years now uh, with global capitalism is that poorer, poorer. So every country has its own common class that we're in different positions. And so over the past 50 years, the poorer countries and the middle countries, th- their common class has come up. In wealth and net wealth uh, due to the distributed global economy. A lot of Chinese people and Thai people and African people that otherwise wouldn't have had access. Uh, Singapore has done incredibly well for itself. So a lot of people who wouldn't have had access to the global economy got it and have done well. And so there's been a large rise there. Uh, and mm-hmm. then the so that's the that's the back of the elephant. And then the tip of the, the so the elephant his cur his tusk or his uh what's it called? I should know what a trunk, the trunk of an elephant, uh, it goes up, it curves up. And the tip of it is the 1%, is the 0.1%, is the billionaire class, is the, you know, the 100 billionaire class, are very, very wealthy. They've done incredibly well with global capitalism. But the dip, the elephant's trunk dip, is the common class in the wealthy countries. So the common Mm. Americans, the common English, the common Germans, we are having a hard time, a harder time relatively, because basically we're, as commoners, we're now competing with Thailanders. And so I was at a job one time, it was a call center right here in uh, Santa, what city was it in? Was it in Santa Monica? Near Santa Monica, if not in it. And it was just a call place, we call, make phone calls all day, that's fine. Well, the ball, and there were about 15 people in the office at any any one season, right? Uh, It didn't take a whole bunch. But the boss figured out that he could hire three Filipinos that could work in eight uh, consecutive eight hour shifts for the same that he could pay one American for that one eight hour shift because they he had to pay him one third as much. And so for the equivalent amount of money, he could get three times the work. And for him, mm-hmm. it just made business sense. So he just started slowly. And, you know, when somebody would leave, he'd replace them with Filipinos. Somebody else would leave, he'd replace them with Filipinos. Now, it's not like he was kicking people out the door. He just wasn't rehiring Americans. And he was just, and so, and that's what made sense to him. And I said, you know what? How can I tell him 
as a small business owner that that doesn't make sense. How can I tell that Filipino company that's marketing itself to American call centers uh, that that's now exist when it couldn't exist before? How can I tell them that it doesn't make sense? Um, and I say all this to say that there is a problem with the Western common. We are being diminished in our position. And so I think the most powerful solution for us is basic income. Uh, I think that we need to take the next step in terms of human economy and understand that it's our attention. It's our collective attentions that are truly valuable. It's the it's what we want to pay attention to that is truly the source of value in the economy. And we need to be paid for that. And I think that's that's something that's not being addressed currently. Uh, I think that's part of what fuels the anger uh, against the establishment from the right and what fuels the anger against the wealthy from the left uh, is that the common Westerner, the common people in the advanced civilizations are kind of being squeezed in the global capitalist system. Mm hmm. I, I fully agree with you on that. I, I think that you're you're dead on the head that it's not the small business owner's fault. Hell, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even say it's the billionaire business owner's fault. I think it's I think it's the fault of our lawmakers that aren't doing anything to curtail that kind of behavior. Hmm. Like if if you if you live in a society where you sell all of your products to Americans and won't hire Americans to do the work to sell a product because it's not financially viable, it's more financially viable for you to offload that work, then that should not come out of, that should not come out of the the American worker's pocket. That should come out of the CEO's pocket. So that needs to be taxed heavily. That needs to be regulated heavily. Out also, uh, but then uh, also, do you, well, see, so taxing it, like see, taxing it, I would rather, I'm for, a VAT tax, a value-added tax, but I really want to see those tax dollars fund a basic income because I I feel like the treasury just getting fatter doesn't help us. I, I think well, UBI, that UBI I don't think UBI I don't think is 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 really financially viable. Um, I I think I think you'll come to a point where you're where you're pulling money out of the economy to feed it to people who are who are not contributing to it and that's always going to result in in abuse in excess like we can't keep you know just regular tax keeping straight for for all of our citizens there's no way we're going to be able to to police you know people coming up with nine social security numbers to get nine thousand a month and in, in you know it's just not gonna it's, it's gonna it's gonna end up terribly I think more importantly, we should be focused on more achievable, more realistic short-term goals like re uh, reforming our prison system, reforming our our military-industrial complex into into something that's a, a healthier industrial complex for us to be feeding as much as we do. I think it should be first and foremost Medicare for all or, or universal health care, whatever form it takes. Uh, that's something that is, it's insane to me that we don't already do that. It's, it's way cheaper, obviously. I'm definitely to, for national health care. Uh, but what do you, so do you think that, what percentage of people uh, getting basic income do you think would gain the system? Do you think it would be 5%, 10%, 1%? What percent of people do you think, percentage of people do you think would gain basic income in the way that you described? Maybe one percent. Maybe 1%. So you think that maybe stopping 1%. stopping that 1% from being able to successfully 
uh, trick the land into giving more fat than they deserve, that 1% is worth not giving the tangible benefit to the other 99%? Yes, because there's another probably 20 to 30% that would take UBI as a reason never to work. And what's wrong with and that? It, it, there, remember how I said every human should be encouraged to give the best of themselves to uh -huh. the rest of humanity. Uh-huh. That. But you think if that you think so you think you think you're not giving the best of yourself. No, see I disagree. I don't think selling your attention because you have to eat is giving the best of yourself. I think the best think, the best of yourself comes right from being free. But Yes, but that's a that's a fine line because because if you if you don't give a man again using man in a, in a colloquial sense not mm -hmm. a literal one mm -hmm. if you don't give someone a a a reason uh, for being if you don't give somebody a a purpose they will very quickly lose all interest in finding one and how all the perfect where have you seen that dude Man, I have dealt with depressed people, damaged people, pretty much my whole life. Mm. I've seen it all over. I like it, it. Really doesn't take a lot to give people enough reason to just to just say fuck it. You know what I mean? And and to not try. Uh, and and the quicker that you give somebody who already is in the mindset like, oh, I'm not going to try, an excuse. To continue that behavior, they're never coming. See, but I would say it's what you're. What we want to focus on is what they're not trying to do. Right? Is is they're not trying to go along with uh, what everybody else wants them to do. They're not. They're not trying to fit the mold that society says this is what you need to do to eat. Uh, and they go, I don't like that. I don't want to do those no, things to I eat. Think, I don't think that. I don't think that there should be. No social safety nets. Like, yes, people should be able to eat. Like, obviously, there should be shelters and, and food pantries and whatever that if you can't eat, then you can go here and you can always get food. I, I would also I would also away. offer Internet That's, access would, as a basic yeah. necessity. I would. I, yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, and uh, shelter. So food, shelter, access. Internet access. Shelter, food. Yes. Internet access, I think, is is helpful. How do you I get a think, job? If you, <laughs> you, you got to be able to get online. You you walk in and talk to people, man. I, I yeah. If you if you can walk into a library and sit down at a computer, that's good enough. You know what I mean? I, I don't think there. I don't think you need anything more than that. Mm. Public access in uh, some building, not in the home. You don't yeah. think you don't think that should be offered as a as a right of citizenship? In the home should be. I think in the home should be a utility. It should be protected, but uh, protected from from obviously companies exploiting. Uh, disadvantaged people, I think maybe maybe there should be some kind of regulation that makes sure that there is a low cost option, but I don't think that it should be provided for everyone by everyone. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's is not, I don't water think it is that, water provided for everyone by everyone? I don't think it is. Yes, I think so. No, right? I mean I'm paying water. I don't know what do they what do they do? You know how do you? Yeah, I don't think they don't give away water, but I mean, if I told you, if I said this building didn't have water, yeah, there are a bunch like, of people that are going to get up in a in an uproar yeah, but like about if it. You, but if you really needed a shower, you can go to a public shower. You can go to uh, you know a, a shelter or something like that that's mm -hmm. state funded. If you walk it like. 
businesses are prohibited from charging for a cup of water. I think if you walk into a McDonald's, I don't think they can legally charge you for for water. Mm-hmm. Like if you, but I'm thinking of specifically running so, water in the home. I mean, yes, running water. I think is. I think that should be protected. Food, water, but water being the resource that it is, I think there needs to be an economy surrounding water because we need to continue funding the understanding of how to desalinate water so that we actually have enough water for everyone forever because we're not running out of fresh water right now but it ain't we ain't getting no more at the moment yeah and the system's not the system's not keeping all, up there needs there needs to be an economy surrounding it in order to fund that see right? i think i disagree with something you said that people who aren't selling their attention to some other person aren't participating in the economy or aren't contributing value. Or I forget exactly what phrase you used, but I don't I don't agree with that. Uh, I think they are contributing value. I think simply waking and abiding by laws. That's I think that's contributing. I think that's being a neighbor. I think that's being a son. I think that's being a citizen. And I think that's good enough. Uh, I don't think we need to expect that people should have to sell something in order to eat. Uh, I don't like it. I think I think in our time we will look back in 150 years and say, wow, you used to have to sell your attention in order to eat and go. Yeah, that was the status quo. It was called jobs and everybody loved jobs, (laughs) jobs, jobs, jobs. See, see, here's here's the thing about that, though. For for you to divorce. For you to divorce, like participation in this in society, for you to divorce, like just basic existence from providing something to your community not necessarily selling your attention but being of service to other people in some meaningful way it it doesn't have to be standing behind a ticket counter you know counting whatever the heck somebody pays you to count it could be you know working at you know a food shelter working you know in uh, you know like a water treatment place or like whatever you're doing that is that is positive it it has to have meaning because if you just if you just give people what's needed to sustain themselves without attaching any meaning to it then sustaining yourself becomes meaningless i I don't think so i think i think if you give people the ability to I think if you give people ownership of their own attention, if we if we build a society that from the ground level assumes that every individual owns all of their attention, uh, it's their right to own. They can pay attention to whatever they want, whenever they want, for as long as they want. That's what we provide for our citizens. And then if you want their attention, it needs to be consensual. It needs to be, okay. I agree to give you my attention for this length of time for this price. Um I think that's a better society than this one. The current the current paradigm says you have to sell some amount of your attention until you can afford to own it yourself. So you have to earn the right to own your own attention. And a lot of families have and they keep that right. They keep it in their family. But us in the public sphere, we continue to to toil. We continue to go, Okay, how do I earn enough so that one day I don't have to sell my attention? Uh, That's a problem that I think I see that as a problem and I think we can fix it. I, I fully agree with you, and I don't think what we're saying is mutually exclusive. Hmm. Um, now, I, but I, what, you, what you say is about meaning, and I guess I, I should just, you know, let me let me agree and, and give it to you that if you tell someone, hey, your time is your own, 
that precipitates an existential crisis immediately, as it should. <laughs> As it should, because because you know what? You know what's going on with existence? You're in a freaking neutron, electron, proton sphere, and you don't know why. So you need to be thinking about that. Everybody needs to think about that to some extent. Uh, and yes, have the existential crisis. And I think that a society that begins an existential crisis will come out better. will come out with more engineers, with more philosophers, with more volunteers and caregivers and fewer burglars. Um, that's an interesting philosophy. I, I have absolutely no data to pull from to. Well, there's <laughs> to some, there's a, there's a lot of basic income data going around right now with all these trials we've been doing for the past 10 years. Well, I think you know, not necessarily basic income data, but more from a, more from a philosophical. Oh yeah. No, that's just, that's just con conjecture about humans. Yeah. Crisis. That I have no data to pull from. No, no, that's that's fa that's fantasy. But I, I do like that. <laughs> I do like that philosophy. I do like that that line of reasoning. Um, I I think I think you can I think you can very easily meld the ideas of of having people owning their own attention and people working for their keep. That's I don't think those are I don't think those are mutually exclusive things at all. Mm -hmm. Um and and it, and it comes from it comes from a a very a very simple place and it, it's that if we didn't have all the trappings of modern society and everybody had to, you know, work the land and whatever, you mm -hmm. know, go find food, go for it, whatever you had to do, we evolved as a species. We 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 have a we have a, a like a, a, a biological need for fulfillment through work of our own hands, and if you remove that, then it's removing. Like until we evolve to adapt to that as a species, I don't think that's a healthy thing to remove. Does that make sense? Um, I don't. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. I don't think we're removing it at all, though. I, I think giving someone the ownership of their own attention immediately puts in their mind, okay, well, instead of asking, what do I have to do? I can now ask myself, what do I want to do? And that's the better question for all of us, for, for, the, for the neighbors and the family members and the brothers and the cousins. That's the better question for that person to be asking, what do I want to do? And then they go try to do a thing and then it doesn't work out and they go, ah, I didn't really like that. And they go try another thing and it doesn't really work out and they go, ah, I didn't like that. And a couple years have gone by and then they're talking to somebody about some random thing and the guy says, hey, why don't you try this? They go, ah, I don't know, maybe. And then they do it and they go, oh my God. Gosh, where was this my whole life? And then they go do some yeah, amazing yeah. thing because they were on the quest to find the thing that they wanted to do rather than spinning their wheels, wheels and their energy doing the things that they had to do. I, I fully agree. I just think that you can create a safe environment to, uh, to, to ask people that question and, and for them to ask themselves that question. And you can create a safe environment for them to experiment without necessarily just giving them what I consider is the answer, which is which is the means to sustenance. Like without any other, because think about it this way. If you, if you can give every American $1,000 a month, mm -hmm. you can also end world hunger. You can, you can make sure that every single human being on the planet has a meal. 
you know what? I'm happy. One of those I'm happy you other. mentioned and that. I would rather be doing that no, than yeah. giving people a reason to exist. No, I'm happy you. Do. I'm happy you mentioned that. So people don't often talk about the fact that the basic income push is a nationalist push. And so mm-hmm. it's not it's not often that I get to argue this side of it, but that's true. It's a, I'm I'm arguing for American common American prosperity, not for common Moroccan prosperity. No, no hate to the people of Morocco. Hey, more power to you. I'm arguing for my country uh, and the common people in my country. Uh, that's what I'm that's who I'm arguing for. Not we're not world, uh, not world hunger, American country, hunger. Are the common people in your country not much better served when the entire world is a safer, more secure and more prosperous place? We are better served, but we're not going to cut them checks. We can cut us checks, though. I mean, we're already cutting them checks. We send Israel two and a half billion. We do cut a lot of checks around the world, and I've got I've got mixed feelings about those. Checks. We send Germany checks. We send England checks. We send everybody checks. Yeah, we do. They never asked me though. They never said, "Hey, Kari, do you want to send checks?" I never I never got to give give my input on that. They don't send them black people. Um, I I mean, I I understand what you're saying. I'm just saying that it's there's. I would say I would I would argue that if you if you treat the company or if you treat the country's moral deficiencies first, then you will solve their physical deficiencies. Hmm. So you're a, than the other way around. There's a, there are a couple of there are two uh, philosophies that oppose. Um, one is you fix the people and the people make better systems. The other is you fix the system and the system generates better people. And so it's uh, just difference in philosophies. I'm a I'm a systems first thinker. I think uh, fix the systems and then the people will get better as the better systems evolve. And my my reasoning for that is that I don't see us making each other act better in 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 absence of better systems. Right? I don't see me ever convincing uh, my neighbor to be better just by talking to him. Um, I do see myself convincing my neighbor's son to be better because there are better rules in place and the incentives are different. Uh, that's how I think about it. I, I, I'm, I am 100% in agreement with you. Personally, mm. I told you earlier, I think people suck. Mm. Personally, I think people are self-absorbed, uh, generally uh, feckless and selfish. Mm. And it's, it's really not... It's really not as a, a people first thing. It's a it's a it's fixing the systems morally, and then allowing those people to be better moral people hmm. before they're better political people. It's about imbuing. This is what you're saying. You're saying it's about imbuing the systems with better morals correct. than they currently have. And if you and if you and if you start off with something like UBI, which is entirely selfish, you're not imbuing people with any better morals so they're going to be selfish with the ubi oh the same uh, way they were selfish without no yeah see that's where that's one where one place where we disagree i think ubi is incredibly moral i think it's incredibly moral um i think giving people attentional autonomy and assuming and and giving them the right of ownership of their own attention is so moral and beautiful to me because that's one thing that children in wealthy families can take for granted. They can take for granted that they can go out at 14 
and try to be an Olympic swimmer and fail. And then they can go out at 18 and try to be an actress or an actor and fail. And then they can go out at 22 and start an online business and fail. And know that no matter how many times they fail at doing the thing that they want to do, they're always going to have a safe place to come home to. They're always going to have food to eat. They're always going to have friends and family around supporting them and telling them that they love them. They have full attentional autonomy because their families have been able to accrue wealth. And I think that's a beautiful system. And so what I believe that we've done as a country is that we have accrued enough wealth as a country that now the common American can have that same freedom from birth. They can know that if all falls down, I've always got the basic income. So I can go try to be an actor and a baker and whatever I want to be and start a business and have it fail. And <laughs> they can they can go out and take those risks that we're averse to taking because they have this super robust safety net, not just what we have now. I tell you what, I've tried to uh, get unemployment here recently. I called, this is not an exaggeration, I called EDD 164 times in 25 hours, 78 times in the pat in the last four of those in order to get through to somebody. So the system that we have now really doesn't want you to just collect. <laughs> they really don't want that. They really don't want that. Because uh, I think that's a revolutionary shift. The idea that the common don't have to sell themselves to the wealthy in order to eat. I think that's a powerful shift. I, I definitely, I definitely agree with kind of where you want to go. I don't necessarily agree that UBI is the way to get there, but mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. it, I think, I think anything is better than what we're doing now. That's for damn sure. Because Do you ever right watch now we are, we are failing on, pretty much every moral, political, and philosophical front that I can think of. Do you ever watch it's, Breaking Points with Crystal Ball and Sagar and Jetty? No. I think you would love that show. So Crystal is a, a left, progressive, liberal, right? Not not Democrat, not capital D Democrat, but she's a you know, left-leaning person. Uh, and Sagar is a conservative, family values, right-leaning, conservative. Uh, and then they so small key, small C conservative, but I do think he's a member of the Republican Party and they co-host a show. And what they talk about is exactly what you just said, that the le the American leadership is so morally bankrupt that, you know what, liberal conservative be damned. It's the common that's getting milked here. It's it's us people, us common Americans that that are just have no incentive to be and we need now they don't argue for basic income but they argued your point that the systems that we have now are failing uh and i think a lot of us agree that the the systems the status quo systems in america are failing i think big money in politics is a big problem uh in that arena and so i would like to see i would like to see big money on main street right i would like to so compton has 96,000 residents. Let's assume about 48,000 of them are adults that might receive a basic income. If Compton had a basic income, that would be $48 million a month going into that economy. You want to talk about supercharge Main Street. Uh, basic income is a, is a great way to do it. I, I don't disagree with you. And I think basic income definitely has a place in our society. Mm. Uh, but you detect a moral failing there. Sorry, you detect a moral failing there. I think that I think that if you do not solve the current moral failings, basic income will just become another one. Mm. 
and, and we can't we can't lead off with the big hitter. You know what I mean? Like like in baseball, you know, you got your you got your on base man that goes up first, your 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 lead hitter, and then you've got a couple more guys in between, and then you bring the big hitter in when everything's all lined up, mm. and then you knock it out the park. Mm. That's that's how you kind of got to set it up. And and do I think that basic income has a place? Absolutely. I think there's going to become a point where automation, where robotics make everybody working pretty much kind of inane. You know, just as robots will be able to do what we do much better 90% of the time. You know what I mean? And do I think that we want to get there as a society? Hell yeah. Do I think that that's a great place for humanity to be? Absolutely. Uh, do I think that we need to we need to rush that plot that that process? Absolutely not. Because you know, if we've got that, then people aren't going to outsource to the Philippines, and there's going to be no money going there. And we haven't solved the hunger problem in third world countries, and we haven't solved you know the disease problem and the healthcare problem in in you know our own country, and we haven't solved a million other moral failings of humanity mm-hmm. as a species mm-hmm. i hear that i hear that concern uh, that makes sense i think one of the concerns you would have and then we just we just suck with more money mm-hmm. you know yeah i think and, and that's, yeah, that's no I, I i understand i understand that uh that re- that reaction that makes sense i think one of the one of the concerns you would have is that so imagine this right if we gave out basic income today and there's no rule no system nothing in place to prevent people from signing away their future basic incomes then how quickly would predatory people come out and say hey do you want uh do you want 10 do you want a hundred thousand dollars right now right do you want your next nine years of basic income right now and that person would go yeah i do and they go okay well sign it over to me for 25 percent, and you can have it and you go, oh, man, that's what a deal. I'd rather have it all now so I can just boost and, and do better. And they take that $9,000 investment, not realizing that's not even a loan. That's just right. that's just taking that's just giving away your money. That's not even a loan because it's your money that you're giving away. And so then they take their nine hundred thousand uh, dollars. They sign over the next 10 years of their basic income and then they don't get it for 10 years. And then when they blow their money in a year, guess what? Now you don't get basic income for nine years and everybody else does. Um, yep. Yeah. No, that's yeah, a real I mean, that's a real I mean, concern. That's a real concern. Of, all kinds of stuff like that, but I think there's there's also more pressing things that that needs to be solved first. The, I mean, obviously, the hunger issue. There are starving kids in America that like kids that literally can't figure out how to put food on mm. their on the table. Mm. Can't figure out why their parents can't do it. Why 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 would we be giving people a thousand dollars a month for them to blow on whatever the hell the why wouldn't we fix that? Why wouldn't we make sure that there's food everywhere before we start doing that? Why wouldn't we make sure we have health care for everyone before we start doing that? Because if you lead off with that, you're never going to get the rest of those things. No, I'm for uh, I'm for national health care. That's my chihuahua. He's heard another dog. Except the government. That's the wild part. Yeah. <laughs> so, many, like so many. It's yes. Yes. Wants it. That's right. That's right. So and soccer and crystal. Thirty percent the same now. The wealthy. Those guys. Yeah. Let's just eat them. Yeah. No. For real. <laughs> yeah. They'll change their tune real quick the first time we take one guy apart and start cooking his arms. So, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's just 
really it's 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 crazy that our that our system and and this is just another example of the moral failing is just it, people are elected to be public representatives uh public servants and they go serve their own interests publicly mm. like mm. and we don't we don't punish them we don't hold them accountable we don't fire them like dude i can't screw up at my job for once you know what i mean if i screw up bad at my job i'm done mm. like that's it bam i'm fired I think we so, need to get so the big money out. I think the problem with with elective representatives doing it wrong and doing it wrong for so long is that their in, their only incentive is to make mo- is to raise money, right? All they what they spend all their time doing is talking to millionaires and talking to wealthy businesses and wealthy individuals and saying, "Hey, fund my campaign, buy me commercials, fund my campaign, buy me commercials," because that's what they need to do to stay in their seat of power so that they can do rulemaking 20% of the time and go back to fundraising for the other 80%. Um yep. I think what we need to do is just get rid of that funding scheme entirely and say that you have to have that the maximum funds that a person can give is something like, you know, something reasonable. I don't want to be unreasonable. Let's say, let's say $4,000, $5,000, something like this, right? And I think there are already laws in place, but you, you got to get rid of the super PACs. You got to overturn Citizen United. But, and then you put oh, it in place that you, you max contribution, even in terms of commercials and all that. You know, all that pack is $5,000. And then that person has to have so many small dollar donations. And then, if you force, just absolutely force these representatives to make the people in their constituencies happy, that is to say, you if you're if you're coming to represent District 14 in Southern California or wherever I live, if you want to be elected here, then you need to do something that makes me as a citizen want to give you one hundred dollars. Right. That's your job is figure out what makes the people in your town want to give you money to fund your campaign. Uh, and more people, more than half of the people, right? 60% of the people need to want to give you money. Uh, because, and if that's the only place where you can get money, then I guarantee they'll be, they'll be all of a sudden, they'll be on your porch step. They'll be knocking on doors if that's the only place where they can get money. I like that. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it one step further. Hmm. Take the, take the money out entirely. Make the, make reelection for any political office, a, a, like a bracketed system. There's when out of out of the taxes out of the property tax for any particular district, one percent of that is listed for election campaigns. Mm. Period, and mm. and and you have to you have to pull from that pool. And if you're the incumbent, then you get twenty percent of it, and that's what you get. And you make your election campaign based on that. And there's no there's no way to increase that except to increase the prosperity of the people that you're representing. That's it. And yep. then when when that when that property value goes up, when that when that you know you know monetary uh, slush fund essentially goes up, then that then you have more money to campaign, and that's it. And it's and it's one hundred percent equitable for everybody after that. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, I agree. Uh, I think we're part of the and solution. Then they don't have to spend any time fundraising. They don't have to do it at all. They just show up to work. That's right. Spend your time writing laws. That's what we elected you to do. (laughs) Right. At least write laws. What would you say, Brad, uh, in closing, what would you say to all the the listeners, young listeners, the old listeners? um, What what piece of advice would you want to put on the public record if you haven't that you haven't already done so? Mm. That's a good question. Um, 
I would just say, look upward, look outward, try to find uh, whatever part of the world, whatever part of the environment, whatever part of our existence excites you and, and chase it and chase it with everything you got. And, and when you, when you find that you'll, you'll know what you need to do in life. You'll know where you need to be. Find what, what pushes you and, and, and makes you, uh, just excited to exist, excited to be alive and pursue that and give it everything you've got. And you will make the world a better place. You'll make yourself better. You'll make your friends' lives better. You'll make your own life better. Um, and and it's, that's really it, man. I think that's the that's the secret to life. Well, I think you're a walking manifestation of that philosophy. Uh, having gotten to spend some time with you, I truly appreciate you you coming on. It's been a great conversation. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. All right. Well, I will catch you later, Brad. Thanks again. Thanks for having me, man. This is great. We'll do it again. All right. Bye. Talk to you. Bye.